was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scans. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian on late night sitcoms syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. But every time we dive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. But every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. But every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels I had a time machine. Hello, Cats and Kittens. Welcome back. To episode, what is this, 22 of The Degree? I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray. Once again, simulcasting to YouTube for those who are visual learners and prefer to watch and consume the show this way. Of course, about an hour in, we're going to go as we do to call in only because we're cultivating quite the sense of intimacy and community over on the call-in app. And also, I don't have to manage, uh, micromanage the way I'm doing right now, only somewhat successfully. So you guys had a lot to say about this episode, and I am dutifully here to submit myself to all your thoughts, feelings, and opinions. I am psychologically prepared and grateful for your time and attention Let's just get to it. I see the cue is cueing, the thing be thanging. <laughs> so let's start. Michael, you're up first. What say you about this week's episode or whatever else is on your mind? Hey, can you hear me? I can, Michael. Hey, how are you doing? Um, I'm actually surprised I'm this high up on the queue because I thought I didn't get in. But anyway, I um, want to thank you for the content. You wanted the only like podcast slash entertainer I can kind of watch right now. Everything else kind of makes me sick. Oh, but no. anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what what I was thinking the whole time I was listening to today's episode was I don't know if you guys wanted to touch on like the underlying problem of Facebook and Twitter and like online spaces being really the only true public spaces left. Because, like, mm. outside of online, like, there isn't really a place you can go and be with other people that aren't a part of your crowd. Like, like 60 years ago, that might have been church or the movies or something, but nowadays there really isn't anything. Um, and another thought I had was, what would be your opinion on democratizing the, mo- the moderation of the big platforms like Facebook and Twitter? Um, for an example... I don't know if you ever heard of this game called League of Legends, but back when it was really small and they didn't have any money to moderate it, they basically let the players moderate it. So there was this thing called a tri- tribunal. And basically every time somebody got reported, it would just go up on the tribunal and then people could vote whether or not to ban them or, you know, give them a uh, like a punishment. And it, it was a way for the developers to not have to spend any time moderating the game, but still having some level of, you know, you can't just do whatever you want. Mm. So I think this is kind of the point that Taylor Lorenz was trying to make, right? That there are yeah. these contexts like Discord, these communities as in Discord, where people can do self-moderating. And they are 
sort of successful a lot of the time. Um, and I think that is something. But I think your bigger point that when you're talking about uh, requirements or setting certain kinds of standards, the burden falls overwhelmingly to smaller outlets that don't have the capacity to hire the folks that can do a kind of really thorough moderation. And that's kind of also the issue that's happening here with fact-checking, that, you know, basically – People are kind of expecting an editorial standard that you get from mainstream news sites, which also, by the way, they don't even meet their own editorial standards so much of the time and do such, you know, have such a greater toxic effect on the media as a consequence, given their reach and almost monopoly power to disseminate Mm -hmm. information. Um, But that smaller creators like just don't have the ability. I mean, in the course of this of this episode, I wrongly stated that uh, Joe Rogan had va- was vaccinated and had to go back in when we were editing it. And I realized, oh, let me fact check myself and, and put a little interstitial in there correcting myself. But like that is the obligation of every individual creator. And so much of the charm of these shows is that it's kind of off the cuff and extemporaneous and you're chatting among friends and there's a real intimacy. And when you get to be as big as Joe Rogan, you know, I would agree that there is some responsibility there to at least follow up and correct your mistakes. And I am really heartened by the fact that Joe Rogan has demonstrated a willingness to do that. And I, you know, we played clips of his um, apology 10 minute or nine minute video on the show, but I don't know. Do you think that that's sufficient yourself? Um, I'm in the camp that I don't really care that much about Joe Rogan, but I I do think he's a pretty good barometer for like the rest of America. Mm -hmm. Like more than likely he's going to be closer to the average American than like almost anybody else. Um, because most like most Americans don't like follow politics or follow almost anything that closely outside of like what they need to do to like survive or like entertain themselves. Um, but I do wish more mainstream media would come out and do what he did and at least admit something went wrong. They don't have to say it was our fault, but at least say this was wrong. You know, it could have been like, oh, our sources were wrong at the time or something, but at mm-hmm. least admit that something went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. And I, here's the thing that's, it's it's hard to put into context, but when I, I think a lot of people were really moved, people who might not otherwise have had an opinion are really moved by the kind of grace that Joe Rogan showed in that nine minute sure. video. And it really flies in the face of the caricature of him that's out here where he's kind of purposefully, you know, deluding the public or something. That's definitely the impression you would get from people who didn't actually watch or consume anything uh, of his work. So I appreciate you calling in, Michael. No problem. No problem. Thanks for hearing, hearing me out. Yeah, of course. Um, it occurs to me that maybe I should have started with a little bit of context. Um, oh. <laughs> <here>. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to uh, kick you from the queue, Michael. But it occurs to me, uh, audience, that sometimes I start these shows by playing um, a clip or something else to give you some context from what we were talking about in the course of the um, episode. So let me do that really quick. Let me show you the latest clip that we pulled from this episode. The whole thing can be viewed in Toto on the Bad Faith uh, YouTube page. You should definitely follow the YouTube page, not only because we put full videos of all of our public episodes and clips of the premium episodes, but also because I am not the best at telling you in advance what I'm going to do a live stream um, like this one. So follow it. And I'm also going to, we have this long conversation about, okay, Facebook made my aunt racist, right? We can, and we do have long drawn out conversations about what that means. Facebook's responsibility is, 
But at the core of that problem is nothing to do with Facebook. The core of that problem is your your aunt is someone who can be made racist by Facebook. Pretty. That is so like deterministic and like I don't no, know. No, it's I, the opposite. It's the opposite of deterministic, right? Like what I'm saying is is that the, the the talking head class, us, right, tend to talk about a lot of people uh as if um we can just sort of lay out all the right incentives and they will then believe the right things, right? Like part of the point I'm trying to say here is like there was never a world in which we had a perfect vaccine acceptance rate in which the entirety of the United States had the right response and wanted to get vaccinated, right? In other words, like it is the wonk dream that like um, you can engineer the country in such a way that they well, will do insane but, things. But Fred, the right there are things. other countries that certainly have uh, a higher rate of, you know, vaccine compliance than we do. That's true. We're also the country that invented having to put do not reuse as a beverage container on old bleach bottles, right? Like there's. Okay, but Freddie, th- Freddie, so you think that Americans are just like constitutionally moronic? No, I think that there is something. I think that there's such a oppositional psychology bakes into the American psyche, right? That like, I don't want to do it because fuck you, that's why. I think that is that is part of our uh, national endowment. Maybe we could have gotten to 90% of eligible people vaccinated, maybe. I think that th- these conversations tend to happen in the shadow of a belief in a 100% vaccinated United States that I don't think was ever feasibly possible. The kinds of conversations just for flavor that people are having in, 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 the, in these episodes people are concerned about aren't like, don't get vaxxed conversations. They are more on the lines of, why aren't more people talking about X or Y study that is uh, talking about myocarditis as a consequence of vac- uh, vaccination? Is it suspicious that those aren't more fulsomely, you know, discussed in a more fulsome way in the mainstream, I might not be suspicious. It might just be a, a consequence of COVID. It's not a, a vaccine. It's not something that will prevent me from getting vaccinated because obviously the consequences of getting COVID as a non-unvaccinated person are much higher. There's a significant likelihood of death. But the fact that these are not conversations that are being had and the fact that I'm now being threatened um, of, with deplatforming for having these conversations suggests to the paranoid mind or to the skeptical mind, the rightly skeptical mind, that there's something more afoot. And to your point, Freddie, if we live in a country that is so contrarian where people, you know, you know, have this, well, if you told me to do it, I don't want to do it attitude, then isn't stigmatizing, you know, Rogan and other interlocutors like him completely counterintuitive frankly listening listening to that doctor episode of rogan made me like oh let me let me google some of this stuff Mm. and that is like both frightening and like weirdly provocative i don't know all right frightening and weirdly provocative david what is your take on all of this hey brie hope you're having a good day i'm doing all right how are you how are you doing david (laughs) I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, thank you for playing that clip because it it, remi- it sparked my memory as to the part of the the episode that really just kind of got me screaming in my seat because I felt like Freddie was really putting a lot of the onus on the individual as opposed to trying to put it where the power actually lies, which is with these big companies and big platforms like Facebook. But it, his point did kind of get me thinking about like how he mentioned that. Uh, in the UK, they actually do have laws that kind of do what, what a lot of people would like to happen to misinformation and disinformation, and that would be somewhat dis- deplatforming. And he brings up the point that when you when these laws do go in effect, or rather when they have the effect that they 
do, these the 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 people that they end up deplatforming usually just you know reboot me, regroup, and come back differently. And I thought about myself, well, yeah, except for the people who are smaller, who are too, who don't have the the wherewithal to do mm. that. Did you, in, in your prep work for all of this, did you do any um, uh, reviewing of, I can't remember exactly what it's called. I think it's called Section 230 that they're mm-hmm. always talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, could you uh, give a, a small primer about what Section 230 basically says and then how you think we could change it to have the effect that would actually promote more information from actual experts getting out as opposed to just relying on the, the, cl- the cudgel of censorship? So we did an episode with Zephyr Teachout um, and who else was in that episode? It might have been Glenn Greenwald on Section 230, um, I don't know, six months or so ago. So I would point people to that because I don't okay. want to say anything untrue. Maybe it was um, also um, uh, uh, What's-His-Face. Sorry, I'm having a brain freeze. Uh, you know, who ran against Nancy Pelosi. He's been on the podcast multiple times. I'm oh, just having a complete total brain freeze right now. I can't think of his name either, but I know who you're um, about. Yeah, and he's really good on all of that stuff. So I don't want to say anything uh, untrue. But I I will say that I, I don't – I think it's a fantasy world to think that we're going to get to a place where, you know, misinformation doesn't – you know, it, it's not a social media problem on some level. It's like a public trust problem. And for one, I don't think Rogan is the problem. Right. I I totally agree with that. That's why I was saying, is there a way we can restructure or maybe think, and maybe it's not a policy fix. What, I, I don't know of the way to uh, uh, get more uh, accredited voices to be heard. Like with Rogan in particular, if he were to have uh, structure his show in such a way that he's not just hearing from the people who aren't being heard, but also hear from the people who are basing most of their information on the verifiable, reputable data, then and then asking those critical questions that a, an average person would be asking. But it seems more low. So, like, he has some of these people on just to kind of give their spill and their stick and doesn't necessarily ask you know, super critical questions. It's just questions like most people would ask. And and again, like you meant, like you guys mentioned in the show, that's kind of the charm of the show. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It's a Shahid Buttar whose name flew out of my brain. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't look, I don't, I, I don't listen to every episode of Rogan, but I definitely listen right. to the ones, the episodes that people are upset about. And I listen periodically when there's a guest of interest to me. And I gotta say, I actually think that Rogan asks more and better follow-up questions than the average interviewer. So it's, it's a, I, I, look, the, the difference is that he has people on whose opinions are consensus. So if like, if, 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 uh, you know, Brianna Keeler is interviewing somebody on MSNBC or CNN or whatever, and the guest says something that's completely mainstream accepted, but she doesn't push back. No one's noticing the extent to which she doesn't push back, right? Mm-hmm. I watch TV every day and people say things about how Biden's spending is causing inflation and that's poppycock, right? right. And no it's one's like blowing enough. a gasket about that, even though that has an enormous consequence for our national politics and our voters understanding of what's going on in the world and what lever they should pull in midterms and in the election season, right? I would argue that that is an enormously destructive kind of misinformation and nobody gives a crap. Nobody gives a crap. Joe Rogan isn't, isn't a, and you can say uh, Brian Akeeler is an economist. Okay. Joe Rogan isn't a epidemiologist, Right, right. You know, he's a virologist. And I would say for an an amateur, like most journalists are, 
he asked, like, when you listen to the interview, he's asking a lot of follow-up questions. There were a couple of times that he checked the uh, cardiologist guy, the right. sorry, the, vi- the virologist guy, um, on things he said. And the virologist kind of had to backtrack and, like, be more precise with his language. But the thing okay. is, and, I, and this was this was for me, too. Like, I'm listening to the episode. I'm hearing things like, I don't know what's true or not. I, I have a history of science degree. Half my classes in, in college were a hard science. I put up a bunch of those PubMed papers, and I was like, well, for one, I don't have a time to read every single one of these PubMed papers. <laughs> and also, like, I don't have the context to know, like, the study is limited. There might be another study that contradicts this one. What's the sample size of this study? Like, what what else is going on in the field? Just because something is published, like, they're, they're, it's very difficult. It would be a full-time job for someone to sit around vetting this stuff and for some reason when it's a sanctioned person on a mainstream channel who's saying stuff that we know has now been disproven there was none of this energy and i'm not trying to let joe rogan off the hook as it were because obviously there is an appetite this this issue has become politicized and there is an appetite of sorts for um you know information that seems to prove that people shouldn't be taking vaccines and that Biden is mishandling the pandemic and all these other kinds of things that have a political valence. But I'm also not going to sit here and pretend that there wasn't a political valence in the other direction when it was going to be Trump's vaccine and Kamala Harris mm-hmm. was being asked if she was going to take the vaccine and mm-hmm. when it was Democrats trying to wrap, wrap up the primary and talking about, oh, it's safe to go and vote and all of this malarkey. So. I guess my my next question to that would be, so maybe we should be asking more critical questions of why, or I think we kind of know the answer as to why mainstream media refuses to be as, is, is using him as a scapegoat. Like, I guess we need to be more critical of scapegoats instead of just allowing people to jump on the bandwagon. Yes. And, 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 yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, look, I, I would, if you want to, if you want to prove Rogan wrong, if you want to disprove Rogan and, and, and like own Rogan, have the doctors on I would I would sincerely love because I don't know what's what. I get yeah. I am not a virologist. I would love to see one of the doctors that Rogan has had on his show that everybody's so upset about sit down with Sanjay Gupta or Dr. Fauci or whomever yeah. and actually just clarify the record. That would be incredibly edifying. And what I know me, bro. I like that. <laughs> bro. And what I know, I know I would I would bet every dollar I have in the bank that Joe Rogan would be amenable to that. That those yeah. doctors that have been on his show would be amenable to that, and that the holdup in all likelihood is the Fauci's and CDC recommended people. And I'm not saying all of them. Who knows? Maybe everyone's amenable to it, and we'll all see that airing on next week's Joe Rogan Experience. Okay. But like, to me, this is a really easy fix. If you're really concerned because Joe Rogan is a unique quantity with an extremely large audience and a lot of influence, the thing about him that makes him less like like not dangerous as compared to a lot of other potential interlocutors is that he is so incredibly open to discourse and pushback. So if you're so confident in your views, let's let let's hear from, let's hear it. Let's just hear it out. A hundred percent. I agree. A hundred percent. One last question, um, yeah. and then I'll hop down. Um, kind of off topic. As a podcaster yourself, um, if you could have one service provided to your podcast to make your podcast better or easier, what would that service Oof. be? Well, I would <laughs> love to have someone do all these this clipping and posting. I feel like all I do is post. I'm so tired of posting crap to the internet. No, I um, that would be your answer. Look, booking, booking, booking guests and like posting is the biggest time suck when I could be you know reading and learning about things. So I would really love that. But in terms of like 
fact checking. Well, I can do a better job fact checking as a podcaster if I have more bandwidth to actually just be, be consuming material about the subject matter and material that the guest has written and not dealing with all the administrivia of like posting it to Instagram, posting it to my Instagram, the podcast, Instagram, posting it to the Patreon, posting the Collins, <laughs> pulling down the clips, screen, you know, screen grabbing my my hits that I do on other shows like rising or whatever. So I can put that on my social media, you know, sending out emails that, you know, 50%, 80% of which don't get responses. DMing people, following up on DMs, going back and forth with people's bookers about their schedules, like all of that sort of stuff. So, I mean, okay, I know the tiniest violin in the world for me, I understand, but no, that's kind of the answer I was expecting. Cause I mean, that's kind of why we were friends with case study QB because he seems to do such a good job, or yes. assume, but such a good job of, of clipping so much so that I kind of want to take a masterclass in doing that just because I kind of hate on Colin a little bit. The clipping tool is so cumbersome here. It is so oh. difficult and I try so hard to go through well, my let, clippings, but it's Let, it's let me clarify something because I got caught up today and I had to call, I, like I, I texted them like, this isn't working and they're like, Brianna. So I was having issues because I clipped, I clipped a section. So, so for people who don't know what we're talking about, some of you are watching on YouTube, call in the app that people are using to call in right now has a feature that I think is really great where you can clip a piece of the episode, like a two minute little clip or whatever, whatever length you length you want and export it to social media and they will put, they will annotate it automatically for you in a nice little video and it's cute and it's nice. And it's a way to say, Hey, you don't have to listen to this three hour podcast here. Just listen to this clip. And also if you said something during the episode that you thought was edifying or you just want to be like, Oh, look, I got to take the stage during this podcast. Look at me, mom, or whatever. You can clip that and share that. And it appears on your feed in the call in app and the way it would appear on your Facebook page. The problem is I, the way I caught the reason I got caught up today is because if you don't title your clip, it doesn't let you post it. You can't click the next button. It will even freeze sometimes very much. So at that point, and I think the clips are a maximum of like only two minutes and the, the, the conversations you have just aren't built for two minute clips. I know I try to explain this to people, but I do the best. Like I made a clip today and I was happy with it, but you're right. Just but for, I, I strongly encourage people to do it because it really helps people to come into the calling community and understand all the wonderful work that we're doing here and the sense of community that we're building. But yes, I agree. They're working it out. They assure me that they're working it out. And here's a new call and okay. update for everyone as well. You can now listen live in the app, even if you have an Android phone, although they haven't quite gotten to the point where you can call in with an Android, but you can now listen live in the web browser on your computer. Okay, so they're focusing on saturation first. Smart, smart, good to move. All right. Well, thank you for answering my questions. Thank you, David, for calling, and I really appreciate it. There's also another David on the screen who is getting to the another question that is on the table today, um, the Whoopi Goldberg controversy, controversy. Hopefully we will have Katie Halps in the chat soon to talk through that with me. She has a great video on her page that I did with her the other night. But uh, David, David, thank you for your contribution. Ask us, Whoopi Goldberg Jewish? Are you European Jews white? Whoopi Goldberg is not Jewish as far as I am aware. Um, and this question of whiteness and ethnicity, I think, are two different questions, which is part of, I think, why Whoopi Goldberg got so cut up and confused. I think in a contemporary context, everyone would assume that everyone in this country at least would assume that Jew Jews are white. However, that's a different question as to whether or not they're considered ethnically distinct. And certainly in the context of the Holocaust, they were, which is the basis of the controversy that emerged on The View earlier this week. Happy to take questions about this. Also, Lee Levin writes in, Whoopi, not Jewish. It's her stage name. Correct. Her real name is uh, Karen something. 
Karen with a C. Uh, that's the same question that somebody asked again. And why Danny writes, bring Freddie back. Misanthropy is cool and true. I don't know if I agree with you there. Uh, Lauren Trina says, I just wanted David's question off my screen. <laughs> okay. It's accomplished. Joan Matthews asks, watching and supporting from Denmark. Thank you, Joan Matthews. Uh, I think we're all caught up. So I will take the next call and caller. Jason, you are up. What's up on your, what's on your mind? Hey, Bray, how's it going? I'm doing well. What are you thinking about this uh, evening? So I, it's so funny that you talked about the whoopee stuff because that's kind of why I wanted to call in. Um, okay, shoot. Because, yeah, no, so because I actually watched the cl- like the video before it like, kind of went viral because um, I, I really wanted to know about To Kill a Mockingbird and why it was being canceled. But then it turned into this whole thing about like the Holocaust wasn't about race. And then I was in a place of Molly, you and Danger Girl, because that you can't say that. Wait, <laughs> and, wait, um, wait. To Kill a Mockingbird? I'm sorry. What's going on with To Kill yeah. a Mockingbird? I thought the conversation was about Mouse. So it, so the clip originally had To Kill a Mockingbird and Mouse has been canceled in certain mm. schools or banned in certain schools. So that's okay. why I clicked onto the clip. And that's kind of why I wanted to see, but To Kill a Mockingbird came up for like one sentence and then it became this whole like racial hullabaloo. My question and, and concern is more about the reaction to it because I, I don't like, I feel like it's a weird overreaction towards something that is ignorant versus something that's like hateful or a, a weird opinion to have because I see it as more of like not having a historical context of what, Nazism was and what racism at that time period was within the context of Nazi Germany and just not having a knowledge of that is that is that a justification for a two-week suspension well okay so two things here I people are of two minds about whether or not the suspension is a hefty um, punishment or a light punishment I think on some level a suspension when you know there's no long-term consequences and you're rich as hell it literally doesn't matter. It's very symbolic. And Mm -hmm. so on some level, I almost don't care just because it's such a light, um, a light punishment. However, other people would say other folks on the show have said much more hateful, problematic things, namely Megan McCain. And so by comparison, the fact that she hasn't been suspended for those things rubs them the wrong way. I tend to agree that it seems like Whoopi Goldberg is speaking out of a place of ignorance where she thinks of race as literally skin color and the fact that, you know, in a contemporary context, Jews are considered to be white means that she just can't, her cognitive, she can't like put together the idea that Jews could have been conceived of as a race and persecuted on that basis. But, you know, other people feel like that's, a belief that could only be held if you had racial antagonism for Jewish people. And, you know, that's really not for me to say, you know, from my perspective, Whoopi Goldberg has made a lot of choices and political has a lot of political stances and defended a lot of people that I find to be not only distasteful, but frankly, antagonistic to my interests as a black person. You know, <laughs> she loves to stand for the, for the, um, what's his name? Um, the patriot, um, uh, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, Gibson yeah. Can I tell you a slight interlude? I was once on a plane with my mom, like a five-hour flight, and neither of us could remember Mel Gibson's name to the point about Shahid Buttar, too. It's, like, not personal. Sometimes we have these, like, brain gaps, and the two of us 
for five hours, cannot remember Mel Gibson's name. And Mel is not a name that comes to your head as you're saying. We got to MG as the initials, but we couldn't come up with the M name. Mel is not going to come up in your brain as you're brainstorming M names. You know, you're going to be like Michael, like Martin, you know, Maurice. Mel is not in the Matrix. (laughs) Right. And it was one of the most, it was was like they should implement this as a form of torture. I mean, they shouldn't torture anybody, but you know what I mean? (laughs) It was horrible. The point is that she, she has, you know, not the best friends. There was some Harvey Weinstein defensiveness going on. it's she doesn't make the best decisions all the time and because she tends to make poor decisions in this way it suggests to me that maybe she just has poor judgment and this isn't about anti-semitism i do think there's a defensive a black defensiveness that's running through this though where she right. feels like she has to defend a unique racial claim that black people have in this country which i think she can do without trying to make it a weird oppression olympics or to minimize the genocide that was the Holocaust. And right. as I said on Katie's show, I would love to be able to sit down with Whippy and try to explain this to her patiently, but I don't know that I'm going to get that opportunity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would love to see it unfold on the pod, but, you know, you know, we can dream. <laughs> <laughs> Whippy Goldberg, go on Bad Faith Pod. <laughs> I'll, I'll tweet it tonight. Everybody at her. That's right. You're, you're a hero, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, on, on the Rogan point. Yes. I, I guess, like, it's interesting to me because I also listen to other maybe heterodox sort of podcasts about this. I know there's, like, the Dark Horse podcast with, like, Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying. Um, they were of, uh, I believe, there was that college, I think Evergreen College, and then they started their own podcast based off of what happened over there. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, they have, like, you know, viewpoints that are different and, you know, they bring on different doctors to talk about the vaccine and stuff like that. And, or, you know, the efficacy in these different sort of avenues. And Mm -hmm. my thing is that I like that there is a, I guess the difference for me is that I, you know, I used to be pre-med, so I have some sort of scientific knowledge. So, you know, having that sort of pre-knowledge to navigate through studies and stuff like that, I guess maybe I have, but I don't like the fact that I guess the corporate media structure is trying to say like, well, we have the one and only answer and then using Joe Rogan and like the possibility of a diversity of point of views as like a way of coming at it. Like, no, but we have the answer. Listen to Sanjay Gupta. Don't listen to these other like crackpots. That's the irony. Joe Rogan had Sanjay Gupta on. He basically (laughs) argued like Sanjay Gupta basically caved and had to admit that Joe Rogan was right about stuff. Then right. Joe Rogan goes back, I'm sorry, um, Sanjay Gupta goes back on CNN and gets bullied into, like, reaffirming that Joe Rogan is somehow, like, a bad guy and, like, wrong about stuff. And that became yeah. its own media cycle. And, again, all, all of that does is supercharge people's confidence in Joe Rogan. Like, right. nobody came out of that, like, oh, yes, now I super-duper believe Sanjay Gupta and the people over at right. CNN. Like, zero people thought that. Right. And I don't want to be self-defeating. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I was just saying, like, the horse tranquilizer, like, saga, where oh, it was, like, he face. got on the, <laughs> yeah, like, he got him on the podcast to say that, oh, yeah, they shouldn't have said that, and then, like, mm-hmm. a week later, all they were saying was, like, well, it is horse tranquil- mm-hmm. tranquilizer, and I'm, like, this is the news, what is going on? Yep. So it's, so, it's just also just so demeaning, like, even if you were right, let's just, like, even if there were, you know, if it was never you know, ivermectin, or, you know, it was never medically indicated in any context and it was 100% used for animals, which isn't, tr- you know, it's not true. It's There's not true. Yeah, yeah. But like, even if that were the case, to patronize 
and be so dismissive about such a huge swath of the country that obviously believes this stuff and this beloved guy who gets 11 million it's just not good strategy right it's just weird it's like all the people who came after bernie and then just shined up his credibility in the eyes of so many independents and fed into this as you know he's an anti-establishment candidate because you're saying the stuff about bernie look how did elizabeth warren snake stuff work out for her you know like that, it's just that that's a strategy that like a bad faith attack like that is just never effective. So even if your goal is to end Rogan, you know, because you think he's right. this pernicious threat to American truthiness, like you guys are going about it all wrong. So thank you for calling in, Jason. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, let's see. Tucker, you're up next. But first, I'm going to read off the screen. Thanks for all the free content, Bree. God bless you. Thank you, Donald. Grab them by the <laughs> P-word Trump. Um, and there's another one that I can't find. Um, I can't put it on the screen for some reason. Stephen Lennon says Jews aren't a race. They're an ethno-religious group made up from a variety of races. Well, the, the question here. Okay. So I, I want to get into this. I want to get into this because part of what I found so interesting about this conversation, and I would, I'm going to try to get Thomas Chatterson Williams back on the comp, the podcast to talk about this is that this is what we were talking about in that episode in terms of racecraft. So on one hand, I think it's right to talk about how did the Nazis perceive as Jews, obviously, as a race. You know, they saw themselves as a master race and were trying to do rate, a race-based genocide. The question of whether or not we are participating in a kind of racecraft and shoring up these um, identities that were initially based in a kind of prejudice, the same way that black Americans are told to identify exclusively as black and kind of buy into the one drop rule, something we're proud of now, right? If I, if I meet a black person who's part black and doesn't want to identify as black, there's a kind of like, well, why not? Like, why don't you want to be black attitude? But th I think that Thomas Chatterson Williams raised some interesting questions about why are we so invested in perpetuating what was ultimately a narrative that was designed to keep you in bondage? And I know that's a very controversial take, but I think it's an interesting uh, lens with which to view this conversation. So thank you for that. Um, Carrie Matchett says, you say that Jews are a race because Hitler said they were. No, I said Hitler thinks that Jews were a race. <laughs> I didn't say anything about what I said or what we think of today. But obviously that's what Hitler's belief and the Nazis' beliefs were. Um, if Jews were raised, how is it possible that you don't confront the Zionist race state more? Yeah, Carrie, so we disposed of that. And David, David, again, Whoopi Goldberg has said she is Jewish. Interesting. I mean, I, I, if she said that, like, I don't know the basis of that and why it hasn't been a part of this conversation, why it's not something she maybe artic would articulate on the Colbert report. Um, sorry. Uh, sorry, a long story short says Whoopi's ignorance is taught right now. It's the same when you hear that only white people can be racist or Westerners invented imperialism. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot to unpack, a long story short, but thank you for your comment. Um, and oh, there we go. There's Stephen Lennon. Okay, so Tucker, unmute yourself. Let's hear from you. I want to prioritize the call in folks and not spend too much time reading. Hi, Bri. How are you doing? I'm doing well. What's on your mind tonight, Tucker? Well, I called in last time, but I didn't get in early enough. But uh, so I've got something to talk about the whole uh, Federal Reserve and everything. But I wanted to talk about this episode real quick first okay. and regarding the Joe Rogan. As I've said from the beginning, it's all just blown out of proportion. It's just people uh, in partisan factions going after who they perceive to be right wingers. Like I see people on my Facebook feed talking about, oh, he's racist all this stuff but and want him kicked off for like potentially killing people but they don't say anything about obama having his own podcast on spotify when he's literally a war criminal 
And I'm just like, okay, that you're just disingenuous on this. Like you pretend to care about people, but you don't really care about. That's my view on the whole uh, Joe Rogan. But with the whole Whoopi, I really think that's messed up that they kicked her off or banned her for two weeks because it doesn't give her any room to actually understand. Like if she's just sitting at home, who's telling her anything? How about you just have like some rabbis on or some Jewish scholars on to actually tell her and explain to her how Germans used the United States as a model to mm-hmm. discriminate against Jewish people in Israel mm-hmm. or not Israel in Germany. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm just like, it makes sense. Like, to actually have Jewish scholars or like historical scholars to come on and say, yeah, the Nazis came and studied in the United States and took Jim Crow uh, rules like uh, the one drop rule and applied it to Jewish people. Like I mm-hmm. think in the Nuremberg laws, it said uh, Jewish people had to have like three Jewish grandpas to be considered Jewish. I know they didn't follow that it, mm-hmm. going into it, but I mean, according they to pick that like, number because, Nazi law. Because Hitler had one, <laughs> one Jewish yeah. grandparent. <laughs> he had to get <laughs> exactly. him right under the radar. Yeah, exactly. But like, it's crazy how people like don't like to go into nuance about these issues. And it feels like they just want to, oh, the other side's bad. And if you don't agree with me, you're bad, too. So you're on the other side. And I disagree with you. And I don't like how that is how our society is right now. Well, Tucker, let me ask you this, because some people like I, I hear you in principle, but the fact that Whoopi's appearance on the Colbert Report was so bad, it gives me, like, not a ton of confidence that more time with her on the show would have made the situation better. Did you did you watch that appearance? Oh, yes, I did watch it. And it does seem like she was being completely disingenuous with her so-called apology. And it makes yeah. sense because uh, who's talked to her in that time period between when The View happened and when that Colbert report happened? She just got a bunch of negative press and you just get defensive if nobody's coming up to you to be like, hey, race in each country is a social construct. In Germany, they did like in their society in Nazi Germany, they didn't view Jewish people as white. So they viewed them as another race. It's pretty easy to like set that down. And it just feels like she couldn't understand that basic thing. And I think that if she had like maybe some rabbis on or Jewish scholars, like she could maybe at least feel like she's not being attacked on that. So she's not defensive. So she can maybe understand where people are coming from. Yeah. I also want to, I think, I think, it's interesting the way this idea of like not white in another race, people feel like they have to pick one. Isn't it possible to, and I want to bring Katie into this conversation too, as our resident Jewish advisor, I don't want to speak for anybody, but like, isn't it possible just to be considered to be another race and also like white? Like I, this, this weird, I feel like in America, we have this black, white binary where we just cannot accept the idea that someone could be considered. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'll put that to you, Katie. Like, do we have to choose? Can there be different kinds of white races? Katie, you have to unmute Am yourself. I here? Oh, I'm in. Hey, yeah. hey, thank you so much. Can you guys hear me? Yes, loud and Can clear. you hear me? Okay, yes. great. Thank you. Right, with my loud Jewish voice. Um, well, I really have to say, Bree, I really hope that, Bri- that Whoopi Goldberg sees that clip where you broke it down, and I'm going to just do a little shameless plug, not to plug, but to share the... To really in the hopes that Whoopi sees it, which is that if you go to the Katie Halper show on YouTube, youtube.com slash Katie Halper show, you'll see their most recent clip is a great one where Brie really breaks it down. 
and, and shows the one question that Whoopi Goldberg could be asked to understand why her statements were problematic. And uh, I really agree with a lot of what people have said so far on the show, which is that it's a, it's a weird combination of, of kind of genuine ignorance with maybe a, a little bit of what you call, uh, described, Brie, you said it was a little defensive, like black defensiveness, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I get because you do move around the world when you um, are present as black, you move around the world in a different way than when you are Jewish and white. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes it's probably a tiring to hear the uh, equating of the two groups um, when one one group is, is, is marked, let's say, for the most part, in a way that the other group isn't. Mm. Um, when I say marked, I mean like, is in the mafia term, not like I'm saying. You no, know the, what I mean? The sign so of Cain. Yeah, <laughs> I know that's what. Katie, Katie Halper yeah. says black people yeah, are cursed. Yeah, that, and that's my statement. Cain. And that's yeah, exactly. And that's that's my statement. I'm sticking to it. Um, but I do think that uh, it's um, that it's uh, an interesting uh, discussion. And I think the other part was that she, her apology was just so bad and passive aggressive, and she was so obviously pissed off. And that was not a good look. Um, and the other thing I want to say very briefly is just because I only have a minute, I'll try to come back because I have an appointment right now. But I mean, I'll try to come back after. Okay. But um, but I, the other thing I would say is that in terms of the um, the Joe Rogan thing, you know, today there was a viral clip, a very humiliating viral clip of Ned Price being uh, checked like reality checked um, by uh, Matt Lee, an AP reporter, because Ned Price was just trying to spread baseless accusations and allegations about Russia, Who for which Ned he had. Price? Oh, he's a State Department total tool. Okay. Um, sorry about that. Yeah, total nerd, sad sack of a guy, poor guy, and he had to make these allegations because it's his job about Russia, for which he had no evidence. And when he was asked for evidence, he was like, "Well, the evidence is I just said it happened." And Matt Lee's like, "What's your intelligence?" He's like, the intelligence is this, what I just said. And Matt Lee's like, no, that's not intelligence. That's a claim that you made about Russia Stupid doing something in the future. And that really is the kind of, and, and look, there are certain things I don't like that, that Rogan does. I don't like, he does this kind of, I think, libertarian, macho, like survival of the fittest thing where it's like, we should be talking about exercise and like, you should be taking care of yourself and eating better and obesity, not, not spending so much time on vaccines. I think that's stupid, reactionary, and, and like kind of just embarrassing. Mm -hmm. But let's also be real that there is an entire disinformation, misinformation industry that is like the establishment media that talks about things related to war and peace that never has to fact check. Right. And I think the most dangerous part of, of having a fact checking system, honestly, besides the fact that it stifles debate and censors people, is that it implies that but for getting fact checked, you have this sign of approval. And you're telling the truth, and people aren't. And just look right. at Iraq and look at Ukraine. Anyway, that's my right, stick. right, Katie. That's an important point because I think there's there's an air of all of this at attention on Rogan that has this sense of like, you know, what's that famous example where some politician was asked like, "Do you beat your wife?" And then he right. has to spend so much time explaining that he doesn't beat his yeah. wife, and now everyone just thinks of him as a wife beater. Right. Like, having the conversation about Joe Rogan's truthiness just puts a veneer of not truthiness on him that may or may not be deserved in some context, right. but then completely deflects from the overwhelming emphasis of the lies that happen on the mainstream media. Exactly. Which just gets totally ignored. 
Bree, yeah. I got to go. I'm going to okay. try to come back later, but I want to tell people to come to my call-in um, Sunday. Yes. Katie Halper is also on call-in. Follow, follow Katie Halper, and I love the person, and Katie Halper, the show. I've noticed that a lot of you are following the show, the debrief, but not me. So make sure you follow the person and the show in case they do other appearances and stuff like that. Thank yeah. you, Katie. Go ahead and Thanks. handle your business. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for Thanks, You're the best. And Whoopi, Whoopi, we need to talk to you, Whoopi. Honestly, there's no one who can explain this better than me and Brianna Joy Gray. We are Whoopi, a, I'm a, a, fan. a, we go a way silver back. bullet, secret <laughs> weapon, the black and Jewish experience. What is black girl, black Jewish girl magic? That's what you got with us. So, black, black bye, Jewish girl magic. Thank you, Katie. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, let me read Peter Almo says, Brianna, I'm a cisgendered, heterosexual, Christian, conservative, wealthy white man. No joke. And I just wanted to say I truly love your content. I think you're just phenomenal. You exude fair-mindedness, open-mindedness, and intellectual honesty. Thank you for that, Peter. Um, Anton, Anton, sorry, Anton Diaz, thank you for your contribution. Uh, no comment. And Hue Danny says, then why don't you think Warren is indigenous? I don't think Warren is indigenous because Warren isn't indigenous. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like her own DNA test pulled up that she's barely, you know, has any indigenous ancestry. She also wasn't raised in an indigenous community. She's not culturally indigenous. She knows nothing, has no personal experiences about what it means to be indigenous. I, I don't know what to tell you. She's not indigenous that by any metric. So I don't know. Tucker, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Do you have anything else to say or should I go on to Kathy? Oh, no, it's fine. I, it's unfortunate that Katie uh, went off because she did. I watched uh, the podcast that you two had that you were talking about this whole thing. Oh, well, good. I'm said, glad. And she said something that I just died laughing and I still can't get out of my mind. She said that uh, Jews are intellectual Italians. And being Italian, I died laughing. And I, I'm trying hard to not laugh right now because it just gets me going. Look, I'm leaving that to Katie. I didn't say it. Tucker didn't say it. Katie said it. Um, I, I've been watching The Sopranos, so I'm feeling very Italian positive these days. <laughs> um, that's, oh. neither, that's neither here nor there. Uh, thank you for calling in, Tucker. Thank uh, you. Have a great night. Please, everybody do listen to Katie. She's the hardest working woman in, on the left, and I think funny in a way that people don't get enough credit for. A lot of people read the news transom and recite the facts, but Katie brings a levity to the discourse that I think is sorely needed and also a lot of compassion. Are folks interested in hearing any of the Whoopi apology? Should I just play like a little bit of it to like orient ourselves? Because it was like ghastly. I'll I think you should. Okay, here's a little bit of it. Okay. Thank you. Good to see you again. And Good to see you. you again. And you. Now, you made some news this morning. Yes. On The yes, View. I did. When y'all were talking about the Holocaust. Yeah. And w w would you care to uh, follow up, clarify what you said this morning? I don't know. Because it confused I, some people. It, it upset a lot of people. Yes. Which was never, ever, ever, ever my intention. I okay. thought we were having a uh, discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, because I've, I feel, being black, when we talk about race, it's a very different thing to me. Mm -hmm. So I said that I, I felt that the Holocaust wasn't about race. And people got very, very, very angry and still are angry. I mean, I'm getting, you know, all of the, the mail from folks and mm -hmm. the very real anger because people feel very differently. But I thought it was a, a salient discussion because 
as a black person, I think of race as being something that I can see. So I see you, and I know what race you are. And the discussion was about how I felt about that. I felt that, that it was really more about man's inhumanity to man and how horrible people can be to people. And we're seeing it manifest itself these days. But people were very angry, and they said, no, no, we are a race. And I, I, I understand. I understand. I, I felt differently. I respect everything everyone is saying to me, and I, I you know, I don't want to fake apologize. You know, I, I was I very upset about, that people are misunderstood what I was saying. And so because of it, uh, they're saying that I'm anti-Semitic and that uh, I'm denying the Holocaust and all these other things, which, you know, would never occur to me to do. I thought we were having a discussion about race, which everyone, I think, is having. As the white guy in the conversation uh -huh. here, Ugh, I'm, Colbert I'm does not make this better. Jewish, nor am I black, and mm -hmm. so I have a different perspective. All of this. Yes. It seems to me that whiteness is a construct created by colonial powers um, during the beginning of colonial imperi imperialist mm -hmm. era in order to exploit other people, and that they could apply. Wait a minute, sorry. He's like, it seems to me, like, no, you just were prepped on this like 35 minutes ago, but okay, do your thing, Colbert. It's all different kinds of people, that idea of race. And the American experience tends to be based on skin. Yes, and so that is what race means to me. Mm -hmm. When you talk about uh, being a racist, I was saying, you can't call this racism. This was evil. Mm -hmm. This wasn't this wasn't based on the skin. You couldn't tell who was Jewish. Mm -hmm. They had to delve deeply to figure it out. Well, I think one of the reasons why that people might say, and again, I mm -hmm. I I, uh, I am I'm not Jewish and I'm black, right. but as someone who understands, uh, you know, what I've read of how the op Nazis operated, when they found out that you were of the Jewish race, right? That's, that's why they'd make you wear a star, yes. so they could see you. So and they could identify you. you. But yes. my point is, they had to do the work. If you see, if the Klan is coming down the street, mm -hmm. and I'm standing with a Jewish friend, and neither one, well, I'm going to run. Mm. But, <laughs> but if my friend decides not to run, they'll get passed by most times because. You can't tell who's Jewish. You don't know. It's not something that people say, oh, that person is Jewish. Or this. So, so this, this is the problem, right? Like, so two things. One, there were many people who felt like you could tell, and there were many people who still like feel like you can tell some percentage of Jewish people what they look like ethnically, you know, whatever the stereotype is. But this is the point that, this is exactly the point that Thomas Chatterson Williams was making. And I got to say, the more time that passes from having recorded that episode, which everyone should go and listen to, um, right now it's a premium episode, but you can get a substantial hunk of it free on the Bad Faith YouTube. And I'm going to consider releasing the whole thing because I just think it's such a valuable conversation. Um, the point that he was making is that he is half white, half black. America says he's black. Okay, fine. He's black. Then he marries a white woman and has these um, children who are one quarter black, but who look 100% white. And that makes him interrogate what blackness means because under Nazi's definition, right, his kids are, you know, if the black blackness were Jewishness, under Nazi's definitions, his kids are fully Jewish. But under America, you know, 
and and under the one drop rule, his kids are still black if he were like birthing those kids in a plantation. But in the contemporary context, you look at these like blonde haired, blue eyed, pale skinned kids, and it feels absurd on some level to insist that they be labeled as black when physiognomically, no one walking down the street would feel that way. And this weird slippage of, between cultural context and what people actually look like and what they are. And, and in that conversation, I was saying to him, you know, well, someone might allow your kid to be white and you, someone might even allow, allow you to adopt an identity other than white because of the way you look and the fact that you're mixed race. But if I walked around saying that I was something other than black, despite my 23andMe telling me that I have some percentage of white and non-black and non-sub-Saharan African ancestry, people would say I was insane because I'm a dark-skinned woman with you know kinky hair. And he was like, well, in some parts of the world, you would not even be perceived as black because in Brazil and South Africa, they have these different gradations of things for folks. And so the idea that we have of this fixity of what race means based on what we what people look like has not even been true in a contemporary context, much less a historical context. And so I'm having a lot of interest in reopening this conversation up that we had with Thomas Chatterson Williams and having him back on the podcast. Wyatt, go ahead and unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Yeah, what you're hitting on with um, this race stuff uh, really hits with me Um, because being, I'm actually a quarter Mexican, but my skin's super dark and I've always been perceived as a person of color to everybody around me. So when you say like, it's kind of ridiculous with Thomas Chatterson Williams that he insists that his daughters be black, I'm... Like, I live in this weird world of, like, I'm really more white than I am Mexican, but people perceive me as a person of color, whether it be Mexican or, like, more commonly when I was younger, Asian, Mm -hmm. which is also very confusing. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's my experience with that. Yeah, it's interesting why David, David on the screen is saying is, is, uh, sorry, if there is such a thing as race, then if you look white, you are white. If you look black, you are black, right? Well, that's the question. So I looked people, Asian, like, I looked Asian right. so much of my growing up, people called me, like, it's very racist now that I think of it. Growing up in high school, me and my brother, I have an identical twin, they called us Ling Ling and, you oh, know, man. told us to eat cats and dogs. And I'm like, I'm not even Asian. This is ridiculous. Yeah, that's, so it's like yeah. this, this perception that we have of race, we have to really, it's weird in the United States. And what Whoopi yeah. was saying, like, I want to say about her interview, she was like, it sounds exactly like what a white woman would say on slavery. <laughs> like, Say more. <laughs> white women will say it was about inhumanity, just the way they were treating each other. Mm-hmm. And in the 60s, we had the civil rights movement and we came together and we we destroyed that. So now there's no racism. You know, that was just them being inhumane to each other. Like it's not racism anymore. It it feels like you're trying to extract the piece out where it's like you are hated because of who you are, like how you were born, something just intrinsic to you that has nothing to do with like your personality, your behavior, your goodness or badness, something that you can't escape. And that's really what we mean by race in this context, right? It's not necessarily color or physiognomy, but the 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 perniciousness of racial hatred, in quotation marks, racial hatred. It's all about saying 
this has nothing to do with you or your values or your behavior or anything that you can control. What feels so pernicious about racism is that it's in, it's something that's perceived to be intrinsic to you that you can't escape and we're going to loathe you and there's no redemption. There's like no, there's no way out of it. And so Whoopi's saying it's not really about race, it's about man's inhumanity to, to, uh, to man seems to be in the same way, and I think you're right, Wyatt, in the way that some, you know, hashtag, you know, Karen's. Karen Johnson. Ironic, because, say. yeah, she is named Karen. <laughs> We'll say yeah. like, oh, yes, racism was bad, but it's like it could have happened to me, too. Like slavery, like we're all in this together. Like, no, actually, <laughs> we're right. not all in this together. People specifically created categories that were perceived to be intrinsic so that they would never be caught up in it. And this other category of people would. And that served a very specific purpose in capitalism and all the things we talk about on this podcast a lot. But it is ironic that that would be it feels like in defense of a, a black person's unique racial claims, which are unique in the context of America, not better or worse, but unique. She is, she is willing to undermine the unique racial claims, ethnic claims that that Jews have in their unique persecution, in the context of the Holocaust. Yeah, you're correct. Um, and earlier you said it was like a defense that she used, used that kind of language. Um, but I honestly see it as more of an offense when she stepped, when she says it like that, like, you know, we, we have more oppression. Why would they even, why are they even challenging me, a black woman on this issue? It's more like an offense. And it seems like it's turning more and like it's offensive and not defensive anymore to me. Yeah. Well, look, I think that, look, a lot of black people feel like you can get away with saying racist stuff on TV a lot more than other groups when they, when when people say derogatory stuff about other groups and whether or not you agree with that i feel like that's where whoopi's defensiveness is coming from i feel like she's sitting there in that chair saying megan mccain said a bunch of racist shit about black people yeah <laughs> and nobody yeah. cared and they're like i think it shouldn't be an either or but like i mm-hmm. understand that that's where her defensiveness is coming from. She's sitting here thinking, you know, Don Imus and all these people have said all these things so many times, you know, mm-hmm. and like nobody cares. And here I am as a black woman, the one that has to answer is yeah. kind of like yeah. sacrificial. And I totally don't position. agree with like this big, so this big media storm surrounding it. I feel like, you know, she should have had a little bit more conversation, maybe not like a two week banning, but like, what type of conversation is she going to have with the people on the view? What are they going to say yeah. to her? <laughs> like, there's not going to be any type of intellectual conversation. So yeah. it's just like, what can we do? You're right. It feels like this. I mean, this Colbert appearance was her opportunity to just apologize and get it over with. And she, you know, re- chose not to do that. She chose right. not She's to like, make I'll just apology. stop talking about it. But it's here's just a, like, yeah. it's just like something my mom would say to me to like shut down my conver- our conversation. But <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yeah. And here's the thing. If she wanted to like not apologize, you know, there is a world where she could have explained all the things that we've been talking about and her feelings and where they're coming from and like what she meant. And, what, and then said that on the Colbert report, but it seems like there wasn't enough time. This, the Colbert interview was filmed the night after the same day as the, the view appearance, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think she should have, should have taken some space and actually formulated her thoughts. And she could have said something that was a sincere apology, but which also articulated some, I think kind of legitimate frustrations that she's having in this moment. Yeah. In a a way that would have like made her feel like she wasn't just eating crow in a disingenuous way. And also 
demonstrated sincere understanding, but this just feels like a PR kick. And now she's in the suspension land, which arguably she wouldn't have been in if she was able to make the most of this Colbert appearance. So okay. we'll see what happens when she comes back because the issue isn't going away. I hope in the next two weeks she can talk to someone who can really help her work through all of this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was probably mandated said, by ABC or something. Right, my <laughs> services, I'm, I'm offering up my services here. Yes, <laughs> thank Whoopi, you for sharing please Wyatt. reach out to Bree. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody right. at, at Whoopi at The View, Whoopi Bukolber, go on Bad Faith Podcast. Thank you, Wyatt. Um, I'm going to read off the screen. Uh, Dog Maine says race is defined by the nation state that socially constructs it. In the U.S., it's by color and ethnicity. In Northern Ireland, it's Catholicism versus Protestantism. Both are white. Thank you, Dog Maine. Um, Eben Isa says Jews were are part of the white race now, right? Yeah, Hitler was racist, but so what? We are in a different context now. I mean, that's okay. Thank you for that. Um, I wish I was better at like pulling these things up when I don't do it as it's scrolling by. Okay. Autor Jan says, call me from Germany. We spend years in school learning about the racialization of Jews and Roma and Sinti and Slavs by the Nazis. The Holocaust wasn't about race, but get you into literal bar fights here. Oh, interesting perspective, Archer. Thank you for that. There's a real um, point for public education and not doing all of the sanitization that's happening with masks. I mean, one of the ironies of this conversation is that Whoopi said what she said in defense of mouse being taught in schools, which is, I mean, it's just a really, the posture of this is really fascinating because she, what she was arguing for is the use of an uh, instructional tool in schools that would help people not end up saying things like what uh, Whoopi has said, but that's neither here nor there. David, David again says, if there is such a thing as quote race, then if you look white, you are white. If you look black, you are black, right? No, that's the whole point. Like the one, that's the whole point of the one drop rule that looks had nothing to do with it. If you were known to have a black uh, ancestor, then you were enslaved. You were legally not allowed to be free. You know, you could be caught up and returned to your, you know, plantation if you were to escape. Like you had to go into hiding and you had to, you know, pass and do so successfully. So the whole thing, I mean, the whole thing is all over the place. Uh, do, uh, sorry, I already read that comment. All right, I think I'm all caught up. Oh, that's a lie. That's a lie. You guys stay writing comments. Um, Artur again says, if social construct reifies biology, is it social? This is this is a point that I was getting to with with um, Thomas Chatterson Williams, and I I said this to him, and I know it's very spicy, but I was like, I understand when people say race is a, is a social construct. I know exactly what is meant by that. I had to take sociology core. Like I understand. I went to a liberal arts college. But I, I think that that sometimes waves away the extent to which there is this physical component to it that we all also understand. So the physical component that makes the last guest, Wyatt, be taunted with anti-Asian slurs, even though he's a quarter Mexican because he looks Asian. And, you know, the, 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 the understanding that while you know, Thomas Chatterson Williams' kids might be able to pass as white and no one questions if they identify as white. Wyatt couldn't. And people would think he was absurd. And I couldn't, even if I get an, a 23andMe test back that says I'm 40% non-black. Do you know what I mean? And I, and I think that people don't really engage with that aspect of it, that it's not purely social contracts. It's a social contracts that also capitalizes on 
genetic variation among our community that makes it feel more real than if you just truly invented something about a whole a whole cloth, you know. Um, Carrie Matchett says ethnicity is not race, and you stated on Katie Hopper's show that Jews are a race. I don't. Okay, I don't. I, I I did not state anything. I stated that Nazis said that Jews are a race. I am not opining on anything. <laughs> I am I am I am not interested in doing race science and categories category categorizing anybody in any way that they don't subscribe to personally. I really need people to use their critical listening skills and understand when someone is talking about what someone else has said and done and not do the thing they try to do to Bernie where he like quotes someone in his book saying the N-word and like Bernie's at the N-word. Like you guys are adults. Use your critical reasoning skills. I know you can do it. I believe in you. I have confidence. Chris Simpson says progressives canceling Rogan are self-sabotaging. He's a Bernie supporter and brought him on to get his message out to his huge audience. He can do it again and boost the next outsider progressive candidate. I hear that, Chris. Uh, Carrie again says, I am Native American. And for white people or black people to try to erase my ancestors' identity is genocide on genocide. Totally. Um. Uh, Antoine again, as someone of mixed background, Cape Verdean, I bet my last dollar most Americans judge race by visual cues. Now let's talk about sounding black. I saw a very interesting TikTok today with a white woman from Louisiana who has a very strong Louisiana accent that makes her sound just like somebody's black auntie and people were going wild in the comments and like truly as you're looking at this woman talk, it is interesting how much mannerisms and voice and accents and stuff impact how you perceive people because you're looking at her and as you're listening to her talk she goes from like a fully white seeming woman to you know your brain's trying to make sense of it and it's it's interesting stuff michael runke says i think Whoopi should go on rogan with alex jones and spend three hours talking about the holocaust i think that would be a productive conversation i think that would not be a productive conversation but i would a hundred percent tune in <laughs> I think that would be a disastrous conversation. Um, but let's hear from the next caller. It's Case Study QB, King of the Clip. Yeah. yeah How yeah. are you doing? I'm so good. Thank you, Dave, <laughs> for that shout out, uh, David, earlier. I appreciate appreciate. That's my currency. But um, I have to have to join my job, so I have to go quick. And I'm a little backed up from a couple episodes ago, so I hope you don't mind. I go off topic real quick, okay? No worries, Case. Anything for you. Thank you so much. So um, shout out to Day and Sylvester. Those are my favorite people to listen to in the, when they come up. Um, also, so I agree with you when you did your pushback on Kashama and Chris Hedges. Mm-hmm. I just want to say I was so with you right there because I think it is beneficial to work within the progressive party. And Bernie did a lot when he ran as a progressive as mm-hmm. far as getting the word out. I think the Democratic Party is just a vehicle. That's how I see it. And then um, I remember a couple episodes back, I complained about, you know, I was like, man, how come the Nevada progressives that took over the DNC in Nevada? Like, I don't see them anywhere. I don't know. And then Jordan Sheridan interviews them <laughs> recently. So mm-hmm. anybody could go check that out. And that was a great interview to see their um, background story on how they took over the Nevada party and then how the establishment is creating a super PAC to funnel money to go around them as the DNC. And then Jessica, on the last show, she's running for office. She was I'm talking mm-hmm. about Act Blue, and I was in a, I'm in a DM and Twitter on, and, uh, with a whole bunch of progressives, and they were, I saw something that they were complaining about Act Blue, where they charge money when you get direct deposits, um, they charge a fee for that, mm-hmm. while um, for snail mail they don't charge. So of course, progressives who are trying to save money, they do the snail mail version, and then they would 
email out like or DM out like, hey, did anybody get their checks this month? And so that's like another obstacle that they could be screwing progressives over where they're not even sending their act blue checks. Then um there's an episode where they talked about um someone talked about Arcane, the the Netflix show. And I must say I watched the whole season. It was excellent. So thank you, whoever that person was in this uh the, the community that um suggested that and then the uh I, I just if you don't mind can i pitch my movie i know you talked about a book <laughs> i'm just gonna say real quick so this sure, is my case. movie Only for thank, you, you. Case. thank you so real quick bad presidents that's the name of it it's kind of like off of bad boss you know there's that show that movie back in the day and basically it's about um a progressive president wins office finally right like a bernie type of president and in the first 20 minutes it shows all the previous presidents who was bad um like a George Bush, a Donald Trump, a Obama, right? It shows their side of them out of office and they're looking at this jealous, they're like jealous at this progressive president who's doing all these great things, right? And that's like for the first 20 minutes of the movie. And then the next part of the movie, you hear that um, um, Noam Chomsky, he talks about how after FDR, pretty much every president is a war criminal for the actions that they've taken, all right? So the, the the next part of the movie, and it's like a comedy thriller, is that that progressive president is going after the previous presidents for war crimes, and that hilarity ensues, and you know, excitement happens. So that's my pitch. And then last thing, and I'm gonna go, and I'm gonna throw this to you, sure. John John Stewart, 2024. What do you think? I was watching a couple um, YouTube's with him, and I was like, man, this guy, you know, he John said he liked Stewart. Warren. Yeah, yeah. He said he liked Warren and he liked Bernie in the presidential and we know his politics to a certain extent now i would put him through the progressive gauntlet of course i'm not mm-hmm. um i'm not um um ah, man the movie michael moore i'm not him where it's like oh tom hanks tom hanks is a great guy mm-hmm. i want to see what his politics are like with ubi and medicare for all, et cetera, et cetera. but i want to throw that to you and thank you and much love to everybody in the chat and to katie also thank you thank you case so my concern with a um John Stewart type candidacy, like the appeal is obvious, right? A huge name recognition, a lot of public trust, real competency in the public sphere, answering questions, debating, all of those kinds of things. But my concern would be, you know, whether he is coming out of left field in order to derail a more authentically progressive candidacy since he does have some kind of much establishment buy-in. I would just be a little skeptical. Like, where was he? And anyone, to be honest, I'm sorry, who kind of lumps Warren and Bernie in the same camp at this point, I have some immediate skepticism <laughs> for. It just is what it is. Um, like, I need you to be able to see the difference, and I need you to be able to, even if you liked her during the campaign, fair enough, um, to be able to be clear-eyed about how she behaved at the end of her campaign and how she behaved in a way that was completely antagonistic to the interests of progressive politics. Um, and I have a lot of respect for people. Um, oh, my God. Why is my brain not remembering any of my friend's name right now? <laughs> um, uh, proud resistor. I'm being insane. Oh, what is wrong with me today? Uh, um, you know who I'm talking about, guys. We're all friends. Marianne Williamson? No, no, no. no, no. Right. Proud, oh. proud resistor. Proud, oh, proud resistor. resistor. Oh, oh, um. um Ryan I know you talking Ryan about Knight. Right. Yeah, 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 you're right. You know, people right. like people like Ryan Knight who were Warren supporters, but then before the end of the campaign, after Bernie won California, at the point at which it was clear that Elizabeth Warren didn't stand a chance, 
But long before she got out of the race, we're like, no, if we really care about these progressive values, it's time to get off the fence and get behind the leading candidate. And I have a lot of respect for people like that who didn't put their petty differences in the way, but truly showed a commitment. Like, fine, if you had a preference for Warren because maybe you thought they were the same and she's a woman or she's wonkier, able to talk about X, Y, and Z, like, I can respect that. I'm not mad at you for that. But at a certain point, push came to shove and shit was on the line. And some folks were like, no, she should stay in because it's a woman's right and all of this nonsense. Um, yeah, I and, agree. And that she was throwing Bernie in the bus and talking about he's a sexist and all of this shit. Like, I need you to not be running cover for that anymore. You know, I need you to not be running cover for a woman mm-hmm. who the same week that that people were flying a Nazi flag at a Bernie rally was talking about how she was personally aggrieved and doing an hour long interview on Rachel Maddow because she got some snake emojis. Speaking of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and priorities, mm-hmm. okay? Absolutely. Like, that's what I need it to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, if he were the only one in the field, yeah, sure. Like, obviously, he's better than Biden or Buttigieg or whoever it ends up being. Um, but in a world where there's an actual progressive challenger, no, I'm skeptical. And I certainly wouldn't, like, lay down my life and my <laughs> work for him in the way that I, I obviously did for Bernie Sanders. Well, Marianne Williamson, 2024 it is. <laughs> Have a good one, everybody. People are, people are saying, thank you, Case. I appreciate you calling in. All right. Um, Tom's up next, but let me read a couple off the screen. Whoopi thought Jill Biden could be Surgeon General, so we're really that surprised. You know, she's had some bad takes. My girl has had some bad takes, although I do feel like I have to just put out there, you know, you guys know what I love her from. You guys know I have these allegiances. All right. Uh, she was guided on Star Trek Next Generation, of course. Thank you, David Fisher, from the su- for the super sticker. Um, I don't know how to get these up on the screen. Courtney Hyman says, great analysis of race as a political category can be found in Joel Olson's Abolition of White Democracy. Thank you for that suggestion. I always appreciate an addition to the um, reading list. Ooh, I'm so bad at like not doing this as they come along. I feel like I'm missing one. Oh, here we go. Oh, no, I read that one already. Okay, Tom, go ahead and shoot while I look at these um, look up these other comments from the screen. Hey, can you guys hear me? Loud and clear. What's on your mind, Tom? All right, first, I thought you were going to say uh, you love Whoopi from Sister Act. At least that's what I remember <laughs> her from. I mean, I'm Those not... are my most fond Whoopi. And she did another movie, Ed or something, where she was like the coach of a basketball team or some shit. I feel like Burt Reynolds was in it with a horse. That's all I remember. You guys should all go and watch the video I did with Katie because I'm very clear and I won't expound on that again. But the best movie in the history of movies, a beautiful collaboration between black people and my family of the Jewish faith, Steven Spielberg directed The Color Purple starring a young Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah Winfrey, a young uh, Larry Fishburne who's credited as Laura, uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne who's credited as Larry Fishburne in the credits because that's how young and like a bit player he was at that time. Best movie ever. Nice. Uh, okay, so <laughs> rapid shot on the first couple comments. Joe Rogan's had a history of getting some extreme cranks on his podcast. Mm. I mean – you know, he's always been like, uh, you know, 50% meathead, 50% pothead. You know, he's had <laughs> wacky fuckers like Graham Hancock. And if I'm not mistaken, he was like a moon landing hoax person up until about five or six years ago. 
I don't think the guy, I've never gotten the impression he thinks he's like a titanic intellectual or something. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the media is really working itself up into a frenzy over this dude. You know, it's Joe Rogan. You know, this is the like, will you eat this penis guy from the Chappelle show and Fear Factor and all the wild, wacky <laughs> shit he's done. The only beef I have with Joe, not even Joe, is just the way people present him. They try to present him like this everyday man. I'm telling you, the guy's like, I'm pretty sure his like growth hormone and steroid regimen could probably put somebody's kid through private school. All right. The guy is not an everyday man. He's insanely wealthy. He's been insanely wealthy. All right. Mel Gibson. I'm a huge Mel Gibson apologist, but I will say the, the best take on Mel Gibson, if any of you are on YouTube and want to look it up, is Bill Burr's rant on Mel Gibson. And uh, my brother and this ties into Bill the whoopee thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, this ties into the whoopee thing. Because, yes, Mel Gibson's a crank, all right? Now, Mel Gibson, I mean, he dropped N-bombs. He punched his wife in the face. I mean, Correct. he did a lot Wasn't of crazy shit. Wasn't she pregnant shit. when that happened, too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she was like uh, some Slavic bimbo or whatever that he left his actual Tom, 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 yeah, Tom. There's no bimbos. Okay. We're, we are all right, a, fine. We are fine. A, a gender-affirming, uh, you know, sex-positive space 100%. okay she was doing a service to the elderly every time she slept with them i'll put it like that <laughs> so this is the one lesson and maybe this is why Whoopi gets along with mel but the one group everybody not to sound like a crank the one group you don't criticize in hollywood are the jews that's not um... some comments on like oh the jews rule everything i'm not like some rothsburg rothschild like protocols you know crank there's just a, a heavy overrepresentation, obviously. And if there is one group that, you know, is going to be more sensitive to criticism, you might not want to go after that group. Tom, I think the point is that, you know, we shouldn't be, even if there are some imbalances, because I will say, like, for example, I have observed that you can basically say Asians are the last group you can pretty much go balls to the wall and say any you know, derisive thing you want to say about, and there's very little blowback. Like, they had commercial, like, do you remember that, like, KFC commercial with a guy in, like, a like a kind of kung fu headband? I'm not even going to do it. But, like, there are these wild, wild commercials that are on the air and, like, nobody even bats an eye. So, like, there are obviously some groups that are more or less, um, sensitive, people are more or less sensitive about because they have more or less geographic or, or um, what do you call it? Census representation, like represent, you know, population representation, or because they have more or less advocacy groups for them, or they have it, you know, all of those kinds of things. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like if you make fun of like Cape Verdeans, there's going to be some big out <laughs> outcry, you know, the same way there would be other groups. But I, I do think that Mel Gibson, at the end of the day, is back. He's back. He took a little hiatus, but now he's back, and everyone seems to be accepting him back with open arms. So I don't know what that says about the, the argument about cancellation. Do we want to watch a little bit of this Bill Burr thing? <laughs> well, is it going to be PG? I mean, am I going to get No, gonna it, get it's definitely not suitable for work. It might be better just to post okay. it All right. in the chat. But, you know, long story short, Bill Burr's comment, he makes a comment at the end. He's like, well, you know, goddamn, that racist son of a bitch can make some good movies. You know, he, Mel Gibson's a right-wing racist crank. I mean, he was on video recently saluting Donald Trump or something. You can look that up was and he see really? it. Yeah, yeah, he, he's out there. But now on the race issue, I, 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 I talk like a moron, all right, but I have, and I don't, I don't have a whole lot of schooling, 
but most of my schooling I did was in like statistics and sociology, whatever. So my understanding is that race, at least in a Western context, tends to be outward in. Your race is more than anything what other people perceive you as. So like, Take me, for instance. I did one of those stupid 23andMe things Mm -hmm. back when it was like $300, totally fleeced, waste of money. But (laughs) my my genetic results show I'm 27% sub-Saharan Black African. Mm -hmm. Now, that's obviously because of the Afro-Latino side of my family, my mother's side of the family, as where my father's side of the family are like, you know, Germanic, Slavic, Balkan, and all that other crazy shit. Mm -hmm. And as you can see from my avatar... I present as, like, extremely white. I mean, most people hear me and see me, and they think I'm, like, your average, you know, Queens, New York, Guinea. Nobody can tell. So that has its own ups and downs. Like, I get to hear a lot of people's racist shit, even though they don't know I'm mixed race, especially when I was in the Army. Forget it. Like, uh, you Mm. can't imagine the shit, Mm. you know, all my buddies would say. Um, But I I think as far as, like, Jewish whites go, look, if – if the census and all these institutions, if they're going to denote white Hispanics from non-Hispanic whites, you have to, at the very least, denote Jewish whites from non-Jewish whites. Not only that, because there's a broad class-based difference between your average white and your average Jewish white. I mean, with the exception of, like, the Hasidic communities, uh, you know, I grew up in New York, and there are yeah. a lot of poor I mean, those, those kind of things are really complicated because it is true. People say the same thing about Asian Americans, right? But it's also true that once you break those groups apart, you know, immigrants from places like Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam are among some of the poorest immigrant communities in the country compared to immigrants from China and Japan. And, you know, people say – you know, the state, you know, to your point about Hasidic Jews, there's all kinds of inner community dynamics. And so when like Michael Brooks is, was very open about talking about the difficulty of like, you know, meshing those stereotypes of kind of Jewish success and affluence against his own experience. That was a very humble upbringing where he's, you know, spoken about living in his car as a kid and all those kinds of things. So, you know, the model minority kind of stereotyping can be really dangerous in this regard. But I do appreciate this point that you're making about the role that how you look plays in all of this in a way that is really not engaged with in these conversations. Because the way the way you look tends to predominate how you're perceived. But if someone finds out more about who you are, then legally that could have certain implications. And then culturally you have your identification because of how you were raised and what your personal affinities are and what you know. And that's why so much of my, I wrote an article about Elizabeth Warren when she first announced and launched that awful, um, you know, video that she had scrubbed from the internet where she had all these Harvard professors get on the air and explain that, oh, affirmative action happens, but not for her. We hired her on her merit as opposed to all those other dumb dumbs that we hired for their race, which is completely throwing affirmative action and all the people of color who are actually people of color under the bus. Um, But I wrote an article then about how she just doesn't seem to get it because in a world where Elizabeth Warren looks like what she is and her genetic makeup is what it is, but she was actually raised in a community of, I don't remember what tribe she said that she was from, but by, you know, it was it Cherokee or am I just stereotyping her because everybody says that they're Cherokee. Um, but like, it, and she had some cultural identity and she had something that was passed down to her culturally, if not, you know, genetically, then I, I'd be much more open to the idea, you know, like, it, you know, that is, that is something. That's worth something, 
you know, it's not for me to say, but like that is something. But with nothing, like if I do a genetic test right now and find out that I'm X percent Irish, which is true, that doesn't make me Irish because what does it mean to be Irish at a certain point? It's this, it's some admixture of culture and heritage and, and, and genetic identity and all of these things that is ephemeral and very difficult to pin down. And maybe we shouldn't even be trying to pin it down to the point of the point that Thomas Shatterson Williams makes that we should just have culture and ethnicity and let go of this racial aspect because it, it it's increasingly like the more you look at it, the more meaningless it becomes, but that's a very spicy topic and people should just go listen to that whole conversation and not base whatever they feel on this little like three minute interlude. But I didn't mean to cut you off, Tom. Do you have anything else? Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to get one less stupid, less spicy take. And then uh, I'm, I'm sure the YouTube people are just roasting me right now. So whatever. I'm too scared to go look at the comments. Not at all. But, but I, part of the reason why also I think maybe I feel like it's either all or nothing. Either you have racial categorizations and you be as nuanced as possible or you do like the French and you get rid of them. But um, I've kind of come to... Maybe this is because my brother is really big into, like, ADOS advocacy. Mm. I've kind of come to see the POC category as – this is going to sound weird. You ever heard of the term stolen valor? Like, mm. all right, I'm a veteran, and amongst veterans, mm. this is, like, an extremely taboo thing. You do not claim to have combat experiences or awards that you've never actually had. Mm-hmm. It's a stolen valor thing. It will get you outright harassed in public you know, yell that, jumped, people will post videos of you. It's our own particular brand of cancel culture. Mm. So, and I think to some extent that the broad kind of POC label can rarely, but at times be used as a way to kind of co-opt the marginalized experience of like actual kind of like black and indigenous people. And so, and this is also, um, I, I had a girlfriend for a short time who was Asian, who used to tell me this. Yeah, There was that comedian that did that really stupid, like, I don't know if it's stupid, but she did the whole, like, jungle Asians versus city Asians thing or whatever, and you see the dynamic and the relationship between, like, the U.S. and Korea versus the U.S. and, like, you know, we have a good relationship with Wait, one country Amy, and then we bomb. Um, Amy Wong? No, Amy Chua. Oh, no. no, I thought it was Amy. Uh, Ali Wong. Wasn't it Ali Wong Al- who did okay. that bit? Oh, yeah, I said Amy Wong. Sorry, Al. Maybe Ali Wong. Or whatever. And I, I, yeah, because she's half, extent, she yeah. calls it like, she wasn't like city versus jungle. She's another terminology, but she's, because she was half the quote unquote good kind and half the quote unquote bad kind. And her husband was also half the quote, good kind and bad kind of different countries. And she like, had a whole bit about it. Yeah. And so pretty much to uh, wrap it up and stop taking up everybody's time. Yeah, you know, I think that POC label, people can be like, oh, you know, you hear it talk when we talk politics. Oh, we need to think about, you know, uh, this community and people of color. What the fuck does that even mean? Like, come yeah, on. Yeah, I think a lot of black people are over it because it it collapses meaningful economic differences between groups and, again, erases the different treatment that people have within those categories based on how they look and everyone becomes a POC as though their experiences are kind of equivalent to what a black person in America deals with. And it is a kind of stolen value. I I agree. I think a lot of people, a lot of black people are over it. (laughs) Like a lot of black people are over the POC, especially because like oftentimes people will say POC when they fully just mean black. 
And it's another way, like, you know how people sometimes, like, whisper black? Because they, like, I feel like they're saying something racist by just saying the word black. It feels like a way for people who feel uncomfortable just saying black to get out of just saying black. And so they're, like, POC. They'll be, like, Howard Howard University founded as a POC university. Like, no, queen. Like, it was founded as a black university. <laughs> like, you know, Frederick Douglass, famous POC. Like, just stop. Just, like, you're just being intellectually lazy at a certain point. Just say what you mean. Um, but thank you for that, Tom. I'm going to read uh, Kindle links. I'd love to hear Rogan and Whoopi discuss cancel culture. They need an interpreter, interpretation, slash splainer. I hear that. Thank you for your contribution. Um, lots of people um, talking about how Color Purple was the best ever made. I'm about to block from the channel. Razzle DC 69 who says it was the worst movie ever because obviously his judgment can't be trusted in any way, shape, or form. Herschel Tidewell, $5 says Dana Glover as Mista. You told Hoppo to beat me? You told Hoppo to beat me? Oh, my life. I had to fight. I'm not going to do this monologue again because I did it on Katie's show. Uh, you should go and watch it over there. I am an actress. Uh, I'm Benjamin writes uh, three hearts. I appreciate you for the positivity. Taylor Sharp says to me, race is a social construct is mostly reiterating the very important point that behavior has nothing to do with someone's phenotype. That's why that needs to be fundamental to the conversation. I hear that Taylor. Good point. Um, and I think we're all caught up. So oh, wait, I lied. Tepid says hit that like button to get the stream a boost. Yes. Tepid. At one point, there were a thousand people in the stream, and I don't know how many likes there are because I don't have the YouTube window up, but everybody should be liking who is watching on YouTube and subscribe to the channel because you know me. Look, guys, my executive function isn't great. I'm not always going to tell you well in advance that these things are happening, but if you subscribe to the channel, at very least, if you hit the notification bell in addition to subscribing, you will get a notification that this is happening. Also, patrons of the podcast, I do tend to post events that are upcoming on the patreon so if you become a patron that's another perk in addition to supporting independent media truly would not be able to do this and have these takes and not have to go and work for some institution um i would have to go and work for some institution if it weren't for you guys excuse me i'm sorry sorry that was gross um uh subscribing to the patreon i really do appreciate it don't know what i would be doing in the alternative um, Michael J says Whoopi's monologue on TNG about generations of disposable people brings me to tears every time. That's not an endorsement of any political opinion, just respect. And so what if Rogan is rich? I hear that Star Trek forever. What Whoopi said are actually being said in anti-racist trainings and allowed to be said in social work field as Jewish enjoy white privilege. Alexia needs to unpack that a little bit for me. What exactly is being said in anti-racist trainings? The idea I don't I don't know that that's true. I think that there definitely is a discussion of white privilege that can be something that floats an identity that floats along, even though you can lack privilege as Jewish persons to still have privilege as a white person and that there's like a, this liminal state that I think is probably a part of diversity training. But I don't know what, that what Whoopi said is really a part of diversity training. Um, Alexi follows up and says, sadly, Whoopi should have been applauded by opening discussion on race, white privilege and how do we see each other? I mean, I do think that this is an interesting conversation and I do wish we could have it. I don't know that Whoopi is the best person to be having it in the context of like a ship of the Colbert appearance, but I'm glad that we're able to have it here. Why Danny says, going to tell my grandkids BJG is a leprechaun. Okay. I mean, for those of you on call and I am wearing a green top, so it is what it is. I do have, you know, gray. I do have a little bit of Irish ancestry. I'm not going to lie. 
Um, the grays tend to be a little bit of freckly and a couple of redheads in the bunch. Also the fairs, my mother's biological father, a bunch of redheaded, freckly black people over there. Okay. Next up, Rika, what's on your mind? Hi, Brie. Um, Patreon subscriber. Thanks for having me. Um, yes, I, first off, I have to say, I'm just so excited about this because I watch the view kind of like how people watch the real housewives. Like, I'm just like <laughs> totally into it. Like waiting to see what Joy's going to say, what Wolfie's going to say. Cause you know, it's going to be some crazy shit. So, um, <laughs> with that said, um, I, I have to say like, I, there are my, my thoughts and opinions on this between Joe and Whoopi are kind of like a little all over the place. But one of the things that I was thinking about a lot was like, why are we all having this like collective fit every time we have these kind of moments where there's like misinformation or something, someone says something problematic, however you want, you know, just what is it? And I, and I kept going back to this book, it's called Conflict is Not Abuse by Sarah Shulman. Mm. And I totally recommend it. I think it's amazing, but it really goes into kind of what happens when we perceive things as all being at the level of abuse or intense threat and how it like warrants like escalation in Mm. terms of response. Mm. And I, I keep thinking about that in relationship to like what Whoopi said, which to be very, very clear, (laughs) I think Whoopi Goldberg says a lot of ignorance (laughs) on on the view. I'm like, she's kind of like that, that grandmother that you like know is doing her damnedest to like right. be on say she's something really trying. wise. Yeah. Yeah, she's really trying. <laughs> you want to give her the benefit of the doubt. But like what she said was just kind of just, you know, was just missing some pieces of information mm-hmm. to really like complete a puzzle there. You know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm not quite sure that war like I'm I'm just confused how that warranted the response and vitriol that she receives, you know, mm-hmm. it, it also reminded me of kind of what Elhan Omar said. Now, and I know mm-hmm. that there's, there was like some parallels there, in my opinion, in terms of like perceptions of abuse and harm and then reactions that follow. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a little like not, I'm depressed at the kind of the state of it because it feels like we all haven't had quite a, collective de-escalation since like you know that we really need around these conversations because the conversation that you have with Thomas Chatterson Williams like that is important we need to have those conversations about the roots and origins of race as a category how it impacts people's lives right we need to be able to do that without feeling like every conversation that we're going to have about these topics (laughs) is going to all of a sudden mean that we're going to have world war three on our front lawns you know like it just like right it it, sometimes it's not our proximity to harm isn't what we actually think it is i'm just curious kind of like you know how how do you go about navigating that that tension when you're having these conversations right because on one hand, we look, we do look to see kind of what people's rhetoric is around certain things as kind of messages to signal whether or not we're safe or not, right? Like, yeah. you know, like we, we do that. We, we, we just kind of are like, oh, you're saying this in a particular way. So I'm assuming that you mean or believe in these type of things. And does that mean that I'm potentially not going to be safe? And I think as like a queer trans person, like, I think that's really, you know, it's, yeah. it's not, <laughs> it's not like beyond me to, think like that you know so I'm just curious how you navigate yeah that's a good question 
I, so my first podcast ever was called Someone's Wrong on the Internet, and it was with my best friend, Joe. And the whole premise of the podcast was because we are best friends and we've been friends for so many years and we've known each other since we were 18 years old. He, well, he was young when we started college, so he was 17, as he always likes to point out. <laughs> that, like, no matter what we said, even if we used the wrong language, even if it was impolitic, even if, like, we just effed up. We know each other enough to know that it wasn't said in bad faith or because we wanted to hurt anybody and that we would be patient with each other and be able to work through stuff more thoroughly because we weren't going to be on pins and needles with each other, that we could correct each other gently and with grace. Mm-hmm. And it's so rare to have spaces like that. And I really want this podcast to be a space like that. But it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. hard because I'm trying to earn the trust of guests as they come through the door. And it takes a lot more than a one-off to have that kind of relationship with people oftentimes. And Ben, you know, producer Ben and I often joke, like the best conversations happen once you turn the camera off. Cause everyone's like, Whew! Mm. and then we chat and it's like, God, I wish I were recording that. Sometimes we have recorded it, but we're like, mm. obviously we can't use it, but it's really frustrating. Right. Even the, this week's episode, we turned the camera off and we had like a great conversation where you know, people are willing to admit a lot more than they're willing to admit on camera. Which is part of why I think that liberals talking about and some leftists talking about how cancel culture doesn't exist is really irritating. We totally. all know that we curb totally. our language all Absolutely. the time because Absolutely. of fear of backlash, even when we don't think that we're wrong or sometimes just because we're legitimately confused, right? Yeah. You know, or we don't understand. So I, I agree with you. I will say with that with Thomas Chatterson Williams, I, I trust that he was a good faith actor. And I know mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't feel that way about him and don't like totally. him. Totally. Yeah. But yeah. I have been yeah. following him for a long time. I have had some like, private DM exchanges with him. I don't agree with him on everything. And I, you know, challenged him on a lot of stuff in the course of that episode, but partly because he is black, you know, like partly Mm -hmm. because I've read his work. I, I think that he is provocative, but I think he's smart and he's thoughtful and he's not rushing to these conclusions. And he is so willing to be vulnerable and work things through in real time. It makes him a really special conversational partner and someone whom I could have a much more, interesting conversation than I could with like 99% of people. It is also true though, that I don't necessarily know and trust someone like Andrew Sullivan in the same way. You know, we, I'd recorded Mm -hmm. those episodes in the same day. Mm -hmm. So I I tend to pair them in my brain, Mm -hmm. but I also just felt confident that because partly it was an in-person interview and I feel like people tend to be kinder to each other in person and treat each other like human beings in person, partly because I had done an interview with him on his show previously and we had, gone through some of the thornier things in his record and, and kind of ad- address some of those thornier topics and come out of, and came out of it unscathed. Mm-hmm. But, and because I'm confident enough about the material that we were talking about in terms of race and racism, that right. I felt like I could handle whatever he threw my way without me feeling like overwhelmed, like whatever Andrew Sullivan mm-hmm. is going to say, I know who I am. I know that I am equal as a black person. I don't feel like I don't have any hangups or senses of like inferiority. So like I can, I can hear someone say something to me that I find to be frankly, you know, racist or something like that and not crumble. Right. And everyone is not in that position. And I understand that there are people totally. who are much more vulnerable than me and who crumble for good reason. Cause they're, they're both black and vulnerable and, 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 and vulnerable to people who have racist opinions. It affects them in their lives and their material reality. And so I, I don't mean that dismissively, but I'm in a privileged enough position where if someone wants to like call me a monkey or like tell me I'm intellectually inferior or whatever, you know, I have enough degrees that have manifested enough ability in the world where I feel like I'm uniquely prepared to enter in those kinds of fights. And it's almost my obligation 
to enter yeah. in those kinds of fights. Yeah. And so I'm not, like I said on the podcast, on this most recent episode, I'm not signing up for, you know, conversations on things that I don't know about. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm a Ukraine expert. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm a right. China expert. I will bring, I have to be much more thoughtful about how to comprise those kinds of panels. And that's why I haven't done those yet because it takes work and I have to figure out, I have to learn enough to know how to pick a guest and then get a series of guests that are going to represent the various angles on this and the angles that I think deserve to be represented as opposed to like some stuff that maybe I shouldn't platform. And that's difficult. And right. so I'm working on right. it. Right. Yeah. I, and I, I appreciate that level of thoughtfulness though, too. Um, because in contrast, right, you do have, and I, I watch Joe Rogan's podcast, even despite some of his, um, well, I think very misinformed views around sex and sports. Mm. Well, I'm curious what, yeah, yeah, I'm curious what you make. And I meant to ask Evan when, you know, when she was on the show, but it didn't really come up and I didn't want it you know, unnecessarily derail the conversation about the censorship stuff. But I am curious. Yeah. I don't mean to put you on the spot. You know, you don't answer for all trans people or anything like that. <laughs> no worries. I mean, so his podcast, he's, you know, he, right, because he comes out of a UFC world. Mm -hmm. That's kind of his bio. I think the caller before kind of mentioned some stuff of like what he's from and stuff. And in a funny way, I kind of chuckled at that. But, you know, so he um, has like this investment in, like around sports especially in ufc and there was a trans fighter i'm blanking on her name who um was competing in ufc and there was like all this controversy around her competing in it and so joe rogan obviously had some kind of what we would call right radical feminists on there to kind of talk about you know their perspective on trans athletes you know competing in particular genders that they identify as in sports and mm -hmm. you know um joe is joe's basic bottom line is that sex there is a biological difference between sexes that there and that actually has been studied according to him <laughs> that has been studied to show that there is an overwhelming difference that is you can't get around between sexes in terms of athletic performance and the the problem with that is not that there aren't maybe differences that you could observe but when we're talking about athletic performance like there is such a range in terms of what that actually means and what actually goes into an outcome like it's kind of like the conversation that like Serena Williams like would would never win against a man it's like no actually Serena Williams will definitely beat a man you know it's what i mean like there's 99% exactly exactly <laughs> so so you know there's a lot of there's this assumption that like training could not somehow override um, hormones <laughs> for, for whatever reason. And in particular, his investment in UFC is that like, if someone with who is assigned male at birth is going in to throw, you know, a roundhouse kick to a face of someone who was assigned female at birth, that person's just going to be knocked out completely, you know, based on mass and body and all that stuff. And that, I mean, you can solve for that. You you know you can yeah, have weight class divisions. Line, yeah, isn't the Olympic line like the that basically if you've been transitioning and your hormone levels are basically within a certain range that is equivalent to what a um, you know assigned at woman at birth woman would have, you know, yeah. then you can compete. There's like just there's just metrics that they've come up with that that accommodates the inequality of the gen of the uh, hormone difference 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, there's even arguments about that not even being like actually substantiated, right? That it's just this belief that somehow these hormones, you know, kind of override everything, right? In terms of athletic performance. And we've seen like issues with athletes who, who are, who identify and were assigned at birth female, identify as women who have these elevated hormones who've been like completely kicked out. So I think in, um, as a, as a CrossFitter, this is actually something that's come up in our world too and stuff. So I think, you know, but aside from that, like, I, I really feel like the, going back to kind of what I, I was curious about in terms of like how we handle these, um, I guess, uh, quote unquote, controversial opinions, if you will, um, or statements really, because really that's what it is, the statements is that I think, you know, we, we've been talking a lot or there's been a lot of chat around like the, whether or not higher education is important and whether or not, you know, like what we talk about in school and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, CRT, if y'all want to like not go to bat for it, like there's a lot of valuable conversation in any course and curriculum around ethnic studies and stuff like that around what race is, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's important. Mm -hmm. You know, taking like, you know, you had a caller on here who was pre-med, I'm pre-med. You know, Mm -hmm. when you have a exposure to a virology course, you know kind of what to anticipate with stuff, right? And it's not Mm -hmm. that that information should just be kept for people, right? Like who can afford, you know, I don't know, like a higher education. I'm just, mm-hmm. what my point is, what I'm trying to say is, is like, there is value in like being able to have and develop like critical thinking and having yeah. exposure to these topics in some structured way. Yeah. And like when we're having these politicized, highly intense conversations where everyone feels like their whole personhood's at stake, right? Having that critic, that practice of critical thinking can also be like really, really important. And unfortunately unfortunately the terrain in which you really you know get practice in that is in higher education and i i want to be clear my experience with higher education was not the best mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a stressful and yet you're in med school you know? like... yes right <laughs> you know right 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 well we all out here trying to live you know so i i but i i just think it's um i don't know i feel like the left's response around sometimes like um just this there's like an absence of like well, how do we actually, what is our proposal around actually getting people to engage in critical conversations with each other without wanting to tear each other's heads off? You know, like we yeah. don't really have, we, we don't really have a substantive response to that other than, and it's just completely filled by the view types mm-hmm. <laughs> who say we need civility discourse in this mm-hmm. like really wacky way. And I'm just like, mm, that's not, you know, as an anarcho-syndicalist, I'm not, I'm not entirely vibing with that either. So like, yeah. yeah. And that's why I kind of, I disagree with Freddie on this idea that Americans are just so stupid. And I didn't mean all Americans, but I was having some right. conversation with someone somewhere, maybe on this call in about how actually I think we need to assume that viewers, you know, voters can handle a lot more. Absolutely. And I think the Absolutely. fact that so many people tune into Joe Rogan talking to experts on like really gnarly granular stuff for three hour stretches at a time yep suggests that people are thirsty for, you know, you know, an interlocutor that respects them enough to ask those questions and do those deep dives. And it is people, it is people driving these long haul truck routes for hours across the country and doing like gardening work where they can have earphones in. And, you know, those are the people who listen to Joe Rogan and the idea that those like 
those people are too stupid. Like that, that, that reflects a stupid audience. It, it completely yes. misses the, the, the point. If exactly. the stupid, it's dumb to want a seven minute soundbite off of CNN and just be force fed a yes. perspective on something without interrogating yes. it for yourself. And I think the left would really do itself a service. Liberals, you know, to the extent that I'm trying to help them out, would do themselves a service by respecting their audiences more. Yes. Well, and so I'm, I don't want to take up too much time. I know there's a lot of people here who probably want to get on this conversation, but I just want to say I'm like pro, pro this idea of you, Katie Halper, Crystal Ball, and maybe Jen from like Jacobin forming like your own, the view from the left. Jim like, Payne, yeah. yes, yes. Like if y'all did that, man, game over, game <laughs> over. Well, I like that. Well, I mean, look, I love it. Crystal's the one with the studio and the resources. I actually just, you know, you know, saw her recently and we were, we're on it to put our heads together. We'll definitely think about, I mean, like, I think everybody wants to, but yes. Crystal and I are in DC, Katie's in, you know, New York. I'm not sure where Jen is. We'll figure it out, but it seems awesome. like there's an appetite for it and we need to, we need to strike. So thank you for calling in. This has been really a thoughtful exchange. Likewise. Thanks. All right. Um, so we are almost at two hours on the live stream. So I'm going to wrap up the YouTube and we're going to keep going on call-in exclusively. Don't worry. I'm going to get to you. Don't go anywhere. Call in people, YouTube people. You can listen live in the browser, even if you're Android only. So this is not the end of the conversation for you, YouTube people. Just open, you know, download the call-in app and you can watch it in the browser on your computer. If you have a, an, an iPhone, please do call in and join. I'd love to hear from you. Let me go through these comments. David T says, give us your best Sophia in the kitchen scene. Look. I really do want to act it all out from her getting out of prison and sitting there doing a slow chuckle. <laughs> Waking back up, talking about past the beans, talking about Seely, when I, when I was, oh wait, when I saw you that day in that store, I was mighty low. But when I seen to you, I know there is a God. <laughs> One of the best scenes in the history of television says past and peace. It's excellent, but I don't want to spoil the movie. So you guys should all just go and watch the color purple. Even Issa says, I want to see Whoopi go on Joe Rogan and talk about her stand-up career and not race for three hours. Hells yeah. Look, if Whoopi wanted a redemptive arc, she should, I mean, I'm not advising her to do this, but there's a world where she does not apologize, doubles down, goes on Rogan and starts a sub stack. And <laughs> arguably she makes more money than she ever made on the view. Um, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, Shane Rossi says, Jackson Hingle wants to debate you on what dress you will wear to their date. Oh, you guys are always trying to get me to date some extremely young person. First, it was um, Justin Jackson, who was 10 years younger than me. And now Jackson Hinkle, who was in uh, diapers when I was in college. Lovely, sweet kid, though. Matthew Drib Dribben, thank you for your contribution. Says, would, would, a, would a petition slash Twitter account based on a litmus test of executive actions that need to be taken before the 2024 election be productive? Organized vote withholding. I think so, Matthew. I think so, Matthew. And I saw some comments earlier about um, people running for president and whether they run third party and people's frustration with the idea that someone would run a democratic party ticket. And we got to continue that conversation, unpack some of that because, you know, when um, our friend from Washington state called in on the last call in or the one before and was talking about the real obstacles to her running third party and why she's running as a Democrat, that resonated with me. The stuff she was saying about not being able to get donations through act blue, if she didn't run as a Democrat, all of that stuff. 
if we want people not to run as Democrats, we have to really work on those infrastructure holes that make it so much harder for third party candidates because lots of folks don't want to devote their lives, especially working class people who run as progressives, don't want to take that financial hit, be out of the job market, like sacrifice all of that, that they really do sacrifice just for a symbolic campaign. So I think we owe them that. I'm like totally with you on people running not as Dems, but we really have to be serious about giving people the support they need in order to do so. Da -da 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 -da. Am I through this? Blah, 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 blah. Am I through all these comments? No, there's one more. Here we go. Tune in, drop out. No, it's true. It's a completely different sport. The men are a lot faster and they serve harder. They hit harder. It's just a different game. Serena Williams. That's a Serena Williams quote. We should have a whole episode on, on this. And it's going to be spicy. And it will definitely be behind a paywall because I'm afraid of cancel culture. Um, but Rika, I would love to hear from you. I obviously want to have um, trans, trans folks participating in that conversation. But it's not one that's going to happen here. Me sitting here in a veil of ignorance. Cheese Sandwich says, would you ever talk to Megan Murphy or somebody like that? Do I know who Megan Murphy is? Let me know if I'm being ignorant. I, I don't know that I know who that is. Um, is that all? Am I through it? Am I through them all? I'm sorry. I know this is not very interesting for anybody to hear me scroll this. Okay. I think that's all of the comments. So I'm going to take this opportunity at one hour and 51 minutes to end the YouTube stream. Remember to like this. There's still 757 of you here. Please like the video and subscribe to Bad Faith YouTube if you haven't done so already. I really appreciate it. Go and watch the full video episode of the Rogan interview. It's up right now on the Bad Faith channel and like it and share it. Really appreciate it. All the other video content we put out there and consider to subscribing to Bad Faith YouTube. You get an additional episode in addition to the Thursday episode on Mondays, a premium episode. We've got some really good stuff coming up, including a candidate interview for next Monday that I'm really excited about. Um, and without you supporting independent media like this and Jordan Cheriton and Crystal Ball and all of folks, we wouldn't be able to do this. So and Katie Halper, uh, don't forget to subscribe and like the, to the Katie Halper show, Hardest Working Woman in Show Business. I appreciate you. We're going strong over on uh, Colin. Come join us over on Colin. Um, but YouTube audience, I'll see you. And as always, keep the faith. All right, Colin, folks. Now we can play music <laughs> and not worry about a copyright strike. So I'm very excited about that. Let's take the next person. Jordan, what's on your mind? Uh, and mute yourself. It's a little button in the bottom right. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. What's Perfect. Up? Sorry, my phone screen's broken and I couldn't hit the boot button. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be honest, I only came here to talk about Star Trek Discovery, how awful it is. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about it. Cause, can I tell you, I haven't even gotten through the first season. Oh, no, I honestly, I was mostly joking. Um, <laughs> I, I watched um, Red Letter Media and they had a pretty good breakdown of like, how much of a betrayal to the direct initiative it is and how yeah, yeah well anyway um the reason why i called is the prime directive mm -hmm. the prime directive yes yeah. <laughs> um, it's not a first amendment oops, sorry 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 go ahead no it's okay um sorry i'm a little nervous um first time calling in um i think america has a really big problem with uh you know what? Can you put me further down the queue? I'm really nervous. <laughs> no, Jordan, Jordan. Look, Jordan, we are all friends here. You got this. You got this. Do you want me to put, do some more soothing Star Trek music for you? Oh, that'd be perfect. 
Musa. We are in 1969 on the bridge, the Star Trek Enterprise. Your Captain, jo- uh, nope, nope, Captain James Tiberius Kirk is settling into an uncomfortable mod chair, looking around him at his diverse crew that represents the tensions of the Cold War, war climate the show aired in. <laughs> Commander Chekhov at the helm. Lieutenant Ahura representing some racial diversity. Fun fact, she was going to quit the show. And Martin Luther King Jr. himself said, Ahura, we need a black woman on TV that's not playing no maid. You got to stay put. Perfect. All right. So <laughs> I, I think that America puts way too much stock into um, identity issues. And really, I think the whole thing is just a big obfuscation to by the mass media for us to fight amongst ourselves and not address the real issues, which are working class struggles and how disenfranchised we are from having any effect on electoral politics at the moment. Um, as a Massachusetts native, I, I got to say the Elizabeth Warren call outs, perfect because <laughs> she's got to go, man. Like, I, I think the next step of uh, the progressive movement needs to be getting more progressive voices into the Senate, at least. And we don't Funny need you mention that because Monday's candidate interview is for a progressive Senate candidate in the great state of Ohio. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Oh, I, I love Nina. She's the best. Um, no, no, no. A Senate candidate in the great what? state of Ohio, not well, not uh, the House. The well, looking Senate. forward to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think I don't know why people are getting so caught up on the um, the Oprah thing and the Joe Rogan thing. It doesn't. I, I guess I just came here to make the point that I think the whole thing's just an obfuscation. I get that we have real race issues in this country, but. When we're spending time talking about this stuff or like how terrible the shit libs are and like it, it's not doing anything to help build our uh, coalition. It's not doing anything to help unify us. So I think uh, the, the caller that was before me, Rika, had a really good point about having um, a panel with you, Crystal Ball, Katie, um, because we need some sort of like alternative that isn't going to focus on shit like that. We need somebody who's just going to talk about the issues. Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm full yeah. of shit. I mean, it was interesting, like being on the Hill, for instance, where, you know, when I was co-hosting last week, where the, the issues are kind of teed up in a way that invites you to have a take, like a really hard take. And this is the whole infrastructure, you know, media infrastructure. But I find that when something comes along that I want to like do a take on, because of the nature of this of a bad faith podcast, I can do something that's a little more substantive than that. Like, okay, if people are talking about CRT, I don't just have to go on a five minute segment and say CRT is bad or CRT is good. I can say like, of course, I think there's, you know, all this value in learning about race and history and all of this stuff, but that's not really what the CRT conversation is about. And this is how you should address it from a messaging perspective. And this is what's going on with Christopher Rufo. And it can be a more substantive conversation. The same as with this Whoopi stuff. But it's very difficult in a traditional media environment to have those kinds of conversations. And so much so that I think that people don't even really believe that a nuanced conversation about these kinds of things is possible. And so we have like entire years that go by, years, with no one ever having like – I've never heard a substantive long-form conversation, for example, about these like trans women in sports issues that aren't just like, you know – uh, what's her name? Harry Potter lady screaming one thing. J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling. And then, you know, you know, Glenn has his take. 
And, you know, people are all like, but like no one's in the room with each other. Maybe that's the problem is that like everybody has to, everybody feels like they have to talk about these issues as the mass media um, presents them. And I, I mean, America is so indoctrinated by like our mass media system. I, I sound like a lunatic right now. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> sorry, but like, plug my phone in my bed. No, not at all. Um, yeah, that's all I got to say. Um, maybe I'll have more to say next week. <laughs> well, thank you, Jordan. I appreciate you. Thank, thank you, you for, for having me. It. And um, I really appreciate that you do this call-in show because honestly, I feel like a lot more um, voices on the left need to be doing that. I actually asked Sabby Sabs about that recently. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I asked her if she would um, entertain the idea of doing a show like this. And she said that she kind of felt weird about... Um, the ethics of calling as a company. I, I don't know, but regardless, I think more people should be doing what you're doing and keep the faith. Well, I appreciate that Jordan. She should come in and co-host a show with me. I would love to talk with her on here. Definitely. Sab's the best. Yeah. She's great. Okay. Cynthia, you're up next. Cynthia from um, the dating episode, right? Oh my God. Yeah. I, um, I'm so happy that you didn't deplatform me after that. episode. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Cynthia, you're one of the favorite guests. Why on earth would I, I deplatform you? Well, I don't know. Cause I got a little like woo woo in my like, Brie, you just have to believe in magic and love. And you know. well, I will say my best friend, Joe was like, all of these income poops were trying to blame you for every, every, like, you know, for basically not currently in this moment having a boyfriend and saying no. everything was your problem and he came to my defense and I was like well that's why you're my best friend Joe <laughs> well, right and I again with the need for nuance because I'm like I you know I feel like it, I, I feel like Instagram hustle spiritual guide you know can kind of it can kind of come off in that sense but I'm it was not my intention to be like Brie you're just not attracting the right man for you right now because you're bitter you know like I it's much right. more complex than that <laughs> in, in the way that I understand things but anyway um as someone who just went on the Wendy Williams show today I was <laughs> you went on the like you were a guest or like you were yes. on the Wendy oh, no, Williams I wasn't show a guest. I wasn't a guest but I was an audience member I got like tickets to the show Tell me everything. Um, wait, wait. I thought Wendy wasn't hosting right now. She's not. Michael Rappaport's ho- uh, ho- currently host. Well, there's like oh. a slew of guests. There's like a couple guests. He follows um, me on, on Twitter, and I've always like thought I should invite him on the podcast. I just don't know what I would talk to him about. I, my, He's like, he can be like, well, I don't even want to say like, he can be problematic. I don't even want to say that anymore because I'm like, I just feel like he's like kind of like misinformed. He's, just, he's a guy. He's just a, he's just an older guy who like grew up in New York and like, yeah, he's like, know? just a Staten Island guy. Yes. Yeah. I don't even know if he's from Staten Island. He just has vibes. Let me, but he let can me be funny. He can be funny and like cool. And anyway, I brought that up because, um, he likes black women too. I know that he does like, that's yes, why he follows he does. me. I mean, that's probably why he's hosting the Wendy Williams show. You know, he can kind of like appease that, that crowd um, and he loves real housewives. So that's why I love him. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I don't know. I just like, it just, this actually wasn't the main point or main question that I wanted to ask about, but it just like got me thinking about, um, nuance and complexity because, and why people are attracted to, you know, to you and to Joe Rogan and to like these, you know, these spaces where there can be so much nuance and complexity because that those mainstream media, media spaces, they're so formulaic. I mean, you literally have to, I mean, I felt like I was in like a, like a, I mean, it was like a farce, you know, or like a theater of the absurd. Cause it's like, okay, then you do woo. And then you do, mm. ah, and then you do, yay. Mm. <laughs> like you kind of have to you know, go on these cues and everything, 
you know, in the, I guess in the political media space, everything has to be like a tape, like a hot tape. And it has to be shriveled down to this like three minute or less segment, you know? So I think people are just, again, maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just a lot of people in these spaces that we're in, uh, or am I just hopeful about America? But I feel like people are just like incredibly thirsty for, Nuance. Yeah, I think that the people who ran TV historically and had a, um, what do you call it, like a, a monopoly on content, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of that like package stuff was working and it's easy to produce and they had a formula. But what mm-hmm. all of this YouTube democratized content has demonstrated was this enormous appetite. Like you go on YouTube and there are all these kids and like not so young kids doing these hour long or at least like 30 minute long videos deconstructing the outfits and Emily in Paris talking about it from a historical fashion <laughs> perspective and like that. they're so well researched they're all like it, it's like all of these contrapoint style videos right where oh, it's not just like off the cuff ramblings it really is it's like a dissertation that you know, she that. she works for like months like the better part of a year on any one video and if you were, that. you know, an, an hour of reading, that's, I mean, like she's, she writes like these like 40 page missives and then like mm-hmm. does lighting and costumes and makes it engaging for you to watch and like performs it in such a beautiful way. I mean, this stuff is, and, and people have the patience to listen. I to can't it believe people have the patience. I can't, I, I mean, I don't know if you'd listen to, you know, Crystal and Sagers late. They have the, I think they brought him on Crystal and Kyle too, about the guy who's talking about like our loss of attention. And I was, you know, I was like kind of scared to listen to it um, as someone who really wants to read and likes to read and like has a lot of books, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, well, that's kind of like one point. So we know that there's this thirst for nuance and complexity. Maybe that's great. Um, but the other thing that struck me today about the pod was when Freddie was like, well, when Freddie was like, uh, you know, how the American ethos is just this kind of fundamental, like I'm not doing it because fuck you. Like, and it just made me think of, I mean, and you know, now I just moved to New York mm-hmm. and I'm surrounded by, like, it just, you know, it hits you coming from like Chicago, coming from the Midwest, which is a city, but like Chicago is extremely segregated. I mean, mm-hmm. by race and by class. Mm-hmm. And like in New York, I got extremely lucky because I, I got a rent controlled one bedroom in Brooklyn, oh, well but done. yeah, I just happened upon it. Um, but like, I, you know, it hits you that I'm like, okay, so I have to make like $300,000 just to like live in a decent apartment and like mm-hmm. a, you know, in a neighborhood that's not, not very aesthetically pleasing or not like ridden by crime. Um, and I'm connecting this in a way, how am I connecting this? I'm going to this in the way that like, how you guys talked about, um, you know, the extreme kind of bipartisanship or the conspiratorial thinking. And that really made me think about like, how that's connected to the American ethos of like, I'm not going to do it because fuck you, because that deep rugged individualism that I think is just, I think there's, I think there's certain values to like, to aspects of individualism of like being able to own the idea that people want to think things out for themselves shouldn't be (laughs) knee jerk. Like that's dumb and bad. Like, because right. that's what I was trying to say to Freddie. Like, I'm obviously not an anti-vaxxer. I can't believe I didn't have to say that out loud. I am and that's triple vaxxed, okay? Yeah. Like, but I felt awkward on the show. I thought, like, people are going to cancel me for even admitting that I was vaccine hesitant in the least. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, well, everyone's vaccine hesitant. Like, no one's like, yay, I want to guzzle down vaccine. Like, no. I mean, I'm, not, I'm hesitant about the booster. I haven't gotten that because mm-hmm. I'm, I kind of felt like, okay, wait. Like, and I, ha- I feel like I always have to preface it 
by like, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but like, I don't know that, that kind of, you know, threw me into distrust where I was like, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just say, didn't these motherfuckers just say that like, oh, it's only through elderly or like, and now I, and nobody trusts the, who trusts the government? Nobody trusts the government. So we're sitting here saying like, we, we live in a time of peak government mistrust. Mm-hmm. We sit here and we see all these historical examples of the government effing up. This is not a new, it's not a brand new vaccine. It's based on all the technology that exists before. You know, there's, you know, there's measured skepticism and there's crazy skepticism, like for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that, you know, like I understand people being like, well, how did they come up with this so fast and needing it to be explained to them? You know, like don't right. say you're stupid. Just explain explain that they were able to why how they were able to do this so fast instead of just calling somebody an anti-vaxxer and kicking them off the off the internet or dismissing them from your lives right i mean and i think it just i made that interesting connection today of like that that this complete just like non-community like in america like we just where is this sense of like american community i mean it's so incredibly separated and i think that that fosters and cultivates that kind of thinking of, of, of sliding into conspiratorial thinking or sliding into mistrust um, because of that, because of that, I mean, and again, this is not based on any kind of like scientific understanding, but just this philosophical thinking that I have, which is like, well, America is so incredibly new as a country. I mean, comparatively to like, you know, other countries around the world. And it's like, I feel like we still have that, like Freddie, Freddie said, baked in, to our consciousness, this internalized notion of like, we have to prove ourselves, you know, like you have to prove ourselves yeah. as a country. And so everyone has this baked in ethos of like rugged individualism and making it for yourself such that like way over on this end of the spectrum, such that this sense of like community and like, you know, becoming um, connected, like deeply connected with other people is just so not there that then it that then it manifests in all of these ways, like deep conspiratorial thinking or mistrust, or I mean, like you said, like this reach out with the vaccine. Like I would see, you know, by I'm like, where is the reach? Like when is like why aren't they doing like fireside chat or like some right. shit where Biden is going out? I mean, maybe you can't physically go out because he's old and the virus, but like. Don't couldn't you like sit down with folks and be like, listen, yeah, if Biden were smart, he would invite Joe Rogan to the White House with a team of his experts and have a conversation with everybody together. I mean, really, like, just have a conversation. Like, I I mean, yeah, that's just I mean, I don't have an answer. You know, like, how do we build community? I mean, you don't need to have an answer. But I will say thank thank you for that, Cynthia. I will say that I I think a lot of people see in a candidacy of someone like Marianne Williamson, someone who can uh-huh. thread that needle and bring the kind of spirituality and sense of community back. I think yeah. that Joe Rogan, sorry, not Joe Rogan, Joe Biden, LOL Freudian. <laughs> I think that he's right when he says we need to heal the soul of America. It's just that he has no intention of doing it or doing any things that are fully in his power to do. Right. It's all and, performative. And it's someone, really... someone, someone should really get on the stick on that. But thank you. Thank you, Cynthia. And thank you for calling in again. For sure. Thank you for having me on. All right, Eric Smith, you are up next. What's on your mind? Unmute yourself and tell me. Yeah. Hey, Bree. Hey. So um, one of the first things I wanted to get out of the way, especially since what happened out of California, mm. I don't ever want to hear anyone talk about co-sponsors ever again. <laughs> it Did don't you see mean our nothing. girl Pramila t- on Twitter? Oh, God. <laughs> I think I threw up a little bit in my mouth. Yes. Well, for those of you who are not like terminally online, like Eric and myself, Pramila Jayapal, 
um, quote tweeted uh, or, or like tweeted a, an article about her image of Chantel Brown, who we all know defeated Senator Turner in the race for Ohio's um, the open congressional seat there in August. Um, talking about like basically celebrating the fact that Chantel Brown is now a co-sponsor of the Medicare for All bill. Here it is. She says, uh, Pramila Jayapal says, Medicare for All is now officially co-sponsored by 118 members of the House. So glad to have Representative Chantel Brown on board as we build this movement to finally guarantee health care as a human right. Now, Chantel Brown did not support Medicare for All <laughs> until this moment. Mm-hmm. And it really sucks balls, man. Definitely does. But this kind of leads into what I want to talk about. Um, It kind of almost what I want to talk about kind of like links a couple of uh, different things that we've been discussing. And it has to do with like the way particularly elected politicians of the left communicate. And for example, dealing with the whole Joe Rogan thing and even some people on the um the left who's on like the online left, like the people who have their shows and everything like that. When they talk about Joe Rogan, one, they talk about him like he's like this deliberately evil mm-hmm. out there to get you person. Mm-hmm. And when they and, and if you, and when they do that, I think what happens is he has such a large following that when you talk about him like that, the people who follow him and who really like his show, it feels like you are attacking them. Mm-hmm. When you attack Rogan like that, you attack him like that. And I think one of the things that I have an issue is like, let's with the ivermectin that he took. Mm-hmm. When Sanjay Gupta came on and admitted that he didn't take ivermectin, I don't understand why leftist shows can simply say, yes, ivermectin that he took is not horse dewormer. But mm-hmm. at the same time, the studies show that ivermectin. It's not medically in- indicated, right? Exactly. That's the thing. It's right, the answer is right there. Like, it's, it, it's, it's like you saying, it's like you saying, like, you know, uh, I play the violin and I'm looking at it and it's a viola and I'm completely, I'm completely correct in saying, sir, like that's actually a viola. But instead I'm like, you fucking moron. You, that's not even an instrument. And I'm like, uh-huh. well, actually it's fully an instrument. It's actually an instrument that's quite similar to a violin, but like you just make the claim that's true. Just say the thing that's true. Exactly. And this goes on to like, when I talk about left politicians and how they speak, they talk in a way, I understand that they're in a position where they have to be careful, like how cutthroat they go. I get that. I understand that you can't probably be as cutthroat as I would like you to be. But I still think there is a middle ground. For example, if Joe Biden does, what did like, we could say, oh, Joe Biden, you know, when he passed the executive order for uh, raising federal minimum wage contracts to fifteen dollars an hour. You mm-hmm. can say something like, "Yes, we thank you, Joe Biden, for mm-hmm. raising you know the federal minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour." But now I also need you to make sure you fight that for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Or why didn't oh, you can Aaron, say something like, "Oh, just like you took okay. out the executive order for that, you can also do this." It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be cutthroat. It could just be you don't have to hold water for them. Like when um AO this is a while back, but when AOC said the whole thing about calling Nancy Pelosi the mama bear of the Democratic Party, like I don't understand why you say something like that. You don't mm-hmm. have to. Mm-hmm. You can simply say, Yeah, Nancy Pelosi is the head, is the at that point in time, is the highest ranking, you know, Democratic uh, official. Mm-hmm. Okay. That gets the point across without mm-hmm. you seeming to 
So I just have a real issue where they communicate because I think they undermine themselves when they mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Also, like, people make mistakes. Like I, I, I fully understand why everyone's so pissed off about the mama bear comment because it's cringe. Also, let's say AOC just like messed up. Maybe she thought that Nancy Pelosi was going to be more sympathetic to a progressive agenda than she ultimately was. Maybe she thought she was getting something. Maybe she got went a little soft because of those brunches that Pelosi took all the progressives out on. Like, whatever it is. I'm not saying it was right, but let's say that she just slipped up and then realized it was a mistake, sees all the leftist media ragging on her for the mama bear comment. At any point in the last year or whenever she said that, she could have said, yeah, I understand why the left is so frustrated with me. It suggests when I made that statement, it suggested that I wasn't willing to be adversarial to Nancy Pelosi. But let me be honest. She made promises that she didn't fulfill. She has been an obstacle to the progressive agenda. And we need to be really focused on getting her out of the speakership if we keep the House next year. Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and then a lot of people will be right back on board with AOC. I completely like, agree. <laughs> and I think before I go to say this last thing, I think that goes to me to the um one of the things one of the fundamental problems i think like i still like these people i think they're the best that we got i'm not gonna be you know uh if i was in her district i would easily have no problem going to vote for aoc or jamal bowman or rashida talib or any one of them but i definitely think they need to understand that while the republican party yes i understand are complete toxic waste that does not mean that these corporate Democrats like Nancy, it's very easy to make mansion and cinema and come after them. But Nancy is not your friend. Mm. She's not. Mm-hmm. And you have to. And I feel like sometimes they they get lackadaisical and don't view them as adversarial. But, mm-hmm. yeah, that's all I really wanted to say. Mm-hmm. And I love your show and all the good stuff that you've been doing. Well, thank you, Eric. I really appreciate you calling in. We got double one. Eric. We got an Eric Gray. Eric Gray, are you my cousin? Let's let's hear from Eric Gray and see if he's any relation. <laughs> unmute yourself and tell me about yourself, Eric. The unmute button's in the bottom right. There you go. Um, I don't know if we are. Who knows? <laughs> Where are your people from, Eric? Um, we're from Florida. I don't know about any grays in Florida. Most of my <laughs> grays are in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, we're all over the well, like Florida, Detroit. Yeah. Well. All of the boys. Um, okay. Well, what's what's on your mind, Eric? Um, really, just like the whole the whole conversation of like censorship. It's just it's showing to be like censoring people. It's just showing to be really dumb. Say <laughs> more, point, Eric. And I mean, it's it's back. It's like backfiring in such spectacular ways. Like the whole the whole stuff with Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. It's like you hit him, like CNN smears him. You, he hits, he gets hit with it. It's like, okay, he's bouncing back and gets even more attraction and more people following. It's like, um, mm-hmm. can we can we learn from this? <laughs> yeah, you know what's funny? I had an exchange with Osita Nuevo on Twitter today. Um, he's been a guest on the show. I, he's so smart. I like Osita a lot. But I really disagree with him because he tweeted um, something along the lines of, you know, people say deplatforming doesn't work, um, but look what happened to Milo Yiannopoulos. And I was like, mm. people tried to deplatform Milo. There were all these campus protests. It made him more popular. The only thing that actually felled him was the allegations of him, like him, like defending pedophilia. And at that point, his own audience, the conservatives who liked him, abandoned him. And that's not deplatforming unless you count like your own platform 
you know, your own audience. Like, if my patrons abandon me, am I being deplatformed? And like, I guess, but that's not exactly what we mean by deplatforming, right? We're, we're talking about people who yeah. don't like you and don't agree with you, forcing you off of like platforms that are not your own, like college campuses, speaking tours, television shows, etc., and and making it so that you no longer have an audience. And the reason that doesn't work is if you have an audience that's organic, the democratized nature of the internet means that you can go anywhere and your audience can follow you, which is why the idea of deplatforming de- Joe Rogan is ridiculous. More people probably watched Joe Rogan when he was on YouTube than when he was exclusively on Spotify. Yeah. And that's true. So yeah, um, I agree with you. I think it's counterintuitive. I, I don't think that there is... I'm open to hearing it, but I can't think of a successful example of people just like, quote unquote, deplatforming someone because in the digital age, it's just an incredibly difficult thing to do unless that someone fundamentally just loses their audience. Yeah, even like even kicking Trump off Twitter, I don't think does what I don't think it really does him any real damage. I don't know. I mean, look, um, I think that had an effect on like. The media, like Twitter, it's so lazy. Like journalists, it's very easy just to write up what happens on Twitter. So there is a way, like being on Twitter is like being able to give a million press releases a day. And the the press can just write up the press release. You don't even have to like turn the audio on your computer on. You can just read it off the screen and put it in an article. And so there is something I think that has, you know, him being off Twitter means that he's just out of the journalist's purview a little bit. And it has changed how we cover him. But the idea that Trump doesn't have a platform, I mean, he's about to start this whole new media organization as a consequence of being off Twitter. And God help us all because that's going to be completely unmonitored. He's going to have free reign there, you know? And who knows what the consequence of that is ultimately going to be. Yeah. Didn't even think of that. Um, I'll admit that. Um, What else? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um... I guess um, I guess I'm in the camp of I'm just like I'm just done with like the Democratic Party itself, like uh, mm. it, even especially with what went down in California. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hold on, you all have a majority, and this didn't happen, and mm-hmm. it took a signature from Gavin. <sighs> just like, nah, nah, y'all are trash, like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, really, yeah, really, just um, they have to focus, um, just keep it class based, and yeah, just keep it class based. Talk well, to people. For, thank you for that, Eric. We're gonna have a guest hopefully soon who can show shed some light on what's gone on in California. I don't think that we should miss this moment because it was such a validating moment in some ways for Force the Vote. But I appreciate you calling in. Hey, no problem. All right, Matt's up next. Matt, what is on your mind? Unmute yourself and fill us in. The unmute button is in the bottom right. It looks like a little corn cob microphone. Matt, you are on thin ice, my friend. All right, I'm going to move on to Brent. Matt, if you get back in the queue, I might come back around to you if I remember. Brent, you are up next. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hello, Bria. Uh, thanks uh, for your time tonight. Um, yeah, I, uh, it was a great episode. Um, I have a lot of thoughts, but I'm, you know, just going to share uh, a couple of things I was just thinking about. Um, I do think that when, it's kind of funny that uh, this whole situation will be happening because 
even when you think about CRT, mm-hmm. CRT would be a helpful tool in terms <laughs> of helping Wolfie to understand some of the complex complexities of the situation, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, CRT is all about the idea that you know race is not only socially constructed but legally constructed as mm-hmm. well, right? Mm-hmm. The law tells us who is black or who is white, mm-hmm. what uh, how they should be treated, where their place is in society, and in turn it um affirms social beliefs, right? So you know, you know, the law says who's black, um, the law says that black people are inferior that um, black people can be enslaved, right? And then mm-hmm. socially people look at it and say, well, then uh, those people must be enslaved because they're inferior, right? So it, it comes, a, it comes, they're both intertwined and they both help to kind of reinforce one another. Um, but yet again, right, the whole idea of who is white and when did, because um, Jewish people weren't even always white in America even, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, that's a whole very complex conversation. I think mm-hmm. um, you were talking about the idea of teachable moment, like on, on Katie Halper's show. Like, I think that is kind of what is missed in these moments is that instead of kind of like, you know, kicking, you know, uh, whether or not you find it to be a, a substantial punishment or not, right? Like uh, kicking and, and um, you know, whooping to the curb a little bit kind of robs people of a real chance of a legitimate conversation and really get to understand these issues deeply. Because while I know, I understand people on the left saying that, you know, um, that, you know, people talk about race a lot and stuff like that. These may be a distraction from like class issues. Um, I don't really think people are having like real substantive conversations about race, right? Mm-hmm. Because even the fact that, you know, you know, in Ohio, right, you know, the whole thing with the Tulsa riots and people didn't even know that happened who lived in Ohio until that HBO show or uh, the Watchmen came up and made reference to it. It's like that shows that there is a deep ignorance of race, um, its effects, and all these different types of things in American society. So I think in the sense the left, I think the left can have a substantial conversation about it, like a very substantive conversation where they're kind of deep, digging into things at a deeper level. So it goes beyond that kind of performative nonsense that we usually see mm-hmm. um so i think that is a, a big thing there and as far as the joe rogan thing um yet again like i think you you made a great point about the fact that mad debate right like putting people together and having these conversations i think um you know i, I think about the conversation with you and sam cedar right like that mm-hmm. that was a conversation that helped to, to elucidate um certain things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, had to, I, had to, I had to make the distinctions as to what the real issue was at the end of the day. Um, so I, I, I think those kind of conversations need to happen and it needs to be a way where people can look at us like, look, man, I highly doubt most of the people, to be honest, this is maybe a cynical take, but I highly doubt most of the people that are kind of like giving like these shock faces at um, Whoopi can really explain mm-hmm. where she's wrong and why she's wrong. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people just know like, it's safe to say this, so mm-hmm. I'm going to say this to avoid mm-hmm. cancellation. And mm-hmm. th- that kind of stuff um, prevents people from having honest conversations and actually growing and learning. Um, the last thing I want to mention is just something you might find interesting. Um, on the 18th of January, there was a guy on Twitter named Michael Bang Peterson. He's a professor of political science, right? Um, and he is out of Denmark. And he uh, put a, a, a tweet thread up because he went before um, Danish parliament. And he kind of did a, uh, there was a public hearing on social media and democracy. 
and basically was he was talking about his findings and giving certain um like policy recommendation or at least ideas of what people what what the government should be focused in Denmark on doing. Right. And one of the things I thought it was really interesting he said was that um that their people um are not it's not so much that people cannot be taught to see the difference between um you know uh, misinformation or, or false uh, information and real news. Mm-hmm. The issue is that a lot of people um, share news based on their biases. So I am, uh, uh, you know, I'm a leftist. I don't particularly care for Rogan's or Rogan's beliefs. So I am biased against him. And the issue was that most people, a lot of people need to be taught like that kind of a humility to say like, hey, you know what? I'm wrong. Or hey, mm-hmm. you know what? I can give, I can cede some ground to Rogan on these points here, mm-hmm. but on these points, I disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that he was saying that's some of the main issues, right? Is this people are sharing information biasly um, mm-hmm. and are very unwilling to kind of back down when they find out that the information may not be true. And I work, you know, if, yeah. if I were, if, if Rogan were to like say, the sky is blue. You know, if Rogan were to engage with Tucker Carlson and say a bunch of true things about Medicare for all, and I shared that, there are people who would be upset with me. I mean, if I don't have to make this up, like Jimmy Dore went on Tucker Carlson recently mm-hmm. and killed it. I share it, agreeing with every single thing that Jimmy Dore said in that clip, as does every other leftist, because it was just straight up lefty stuff. And there mm-hmm. are people who are mad because it's coming out of Jimmy Dore's mouth. And like, that's... I mean, look at the Sam Cedar thing. His whole objection to force the vote, admittedly, is that he doesn't like yep. Jimmy Dore. And so, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I, as a thought expert, sometimes I just, like, I hear, I almost just want to share stuff from people that I know everybody hates, that I agree with. Sometimes sometimes I even think, like, oh, Amy Therese says something I agree with. I should just, I'm just going to share this to be contrarian. Because <laughs> I know how people feel about Amy Therese, but, like, sometimes she says things I agree with, you know? Sometimes, you know... You know, I, I listen to all, I listen to Red Scare, I listen to all kinds of things that I know that people knew my full listening habits. They would be like, how dare you? People say things on Positive of America all the time that are right and true, you know? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I and I like, they're good yeah. news coverage. Like, I, I know their lens, and so I interpret mm-hmm. it, you know, I take it with a grain of salt, but they do a good job letting me know of all the different things that are going on. And if I know if I'm just, if I'm only listening to Chapo, I'm not going to have a good sense of what's moving through the legislature <laughs> in the same way that if I listen to Podsafe, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's, uh, I guess one of the main things that, like, this, uh, this I'll talk about this another time, because it, but... I uh, I know like with Grace and Hannah like a couple episodes ago talked about the abortion topic, um mm-hmm. because of uh, I think his name was Marcel, mm-hmm. uh, the guy who was running yeah, um uh, but I I I one thing I quickly mentioned that is just a Notre Dame a Notre Dame study came out in two thousand twenty right and it was basically saying that Americans when you kind of like really look at it almost no American views abortion as a positive thing mm-hmm. in other words like. No one is saying like, oh, you know, it's like a good hobby to have or something like that. No, everyone, <laughs> everyone views abortion as something that's weighty and and would it's something that should not be. You know, it it would be better yeah, if someone like not Hillary have Clinton, to do it. Like Hillary said, it should be safe, legal, and rare. I mean, that's a pretty reasonable assessment of how people think. Yeah, and I think on the left, there's a real opportunity. And because I kind of do, uh, admittedly, I, I walk in Christian circles in America. And I, there's a whole, there's a whole diatribe I have on the fact that American Christians are kind of like locked into conservative thoughts. And it's kind of really weird coming from a, 
coming from a, a, a Christian who is outside of America, it's super weird. Like, why are Christians in America saying that Medicare for all is like that's just absolutely mm-hmm. absurd to me? But mm-hmm. that's a whole other conversation. But I do think there are a lot of people because I've met them on the left. I'm, I'm, I'm in New York currently, and there are people in, in New York churches that I mean, I know voted for Hillary. I know more Christians in, in New York who voted for Hillary than I could count my hand the amount of Christians I know who voted for Trump, right? Just in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was saying that to say that there is a the left does actually have a great opportunity to reach people um, who they may historically view as opponents mm-hmm. who actually would agree with them on some mm-hmm. things if they would just, I, yeah, I, there's just a whole thing about abortion that could be discussed on a real level of, look, man, this doesn't, this is not something that anybody wants, mm-hmm. right? It exists in society for some reason. And let's talk about the things that could, because um, like for me, right? Like, I mean, Let's talk about federal paid family leave and all these different things that, mm-hmm. you know, like can really be, um, that really do get to the root issue. And like you ask Marcel, like, hey, it's kind of moving the cart, you know, the cart before the horse. Like, there yeah, I was talking deep- to a friend of mine today who is, you know, a journalist in a more conservative context. And he was talking about UBI and how it was explained to him recently. He was not like pretty, like really on board or understanding it, but it was explained to him recently, like, that, you know, his mom is the hardest working person he knows and doesn't get paid for it. And the idea of, like, compensating for all of the unpaid labor that exists in the world. And he made it into, like, a family values issue. And he's like, yeah, that's mm-hmm. going to really resonate with an audience, but it doesn't get translated into those terms. So I'm completely yeah. with you. I think that the left could really own the idea of, like, yeah, I also would like there not to be so many abortions. So let's figure out how to get people sex ed and contraceptives and, you know, yeah, people exactly. feel supported. <laughs> And, and all of those yeah. kinds of things. So I'm with you, Brent. I, I'm 100% with you. I don't have anything really to add to that, but thank you for calling so, in. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you again. All right. Uh, Ryan, you're up next. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. What you thinking about tonight? Well, first off, I just want to say that this is, I'm extra thankful for this opportunity because I was the last one. I was one caller too late last time. Oh, no! okay, Ryan. <laughs> say your truth. Oh, Learned man. It. um so i yeah i just wanted to start out with i guess with the topic of the night um about the rogan stuff like i i I mean i'm sure this has been said a million times but the left misses a big opportunity in from not embracing at least not embracing the biggest show in the country Mm. like um i mean so like i like kind of was first introduced to like left like ideas like uh ventura like matt taibbi mm-hmm. um through rogan for mm-hmm. them like back a couple years ago and stuff and like that i listen to it like a lot less now and you know like i don't love everything he says but and it, not that i don't love everything he says it's just kind of i get his takes can get kind of annoying mm-hmm. when <laughs> but no i think i think it's kind of ridiculous that um people are so up in arms about just about these these things that these guests that he has on but i think that speaks to like the broader like left as a whole like i'm from texas and like the i mean the democrats based like they, they don't have a good name like uh really anywhere in the country but especially mm-hmm. here and you hear from most people like oh i am i'm socially like liberal but i just can't stand the democratic party and i think it's speaking to that condescension 
that um, that's been talked about, like that we have all the truth, we have all the facts, we we are the authority. Yeah, I I I think that's right. It's it's so weird to me. It's just that the complete and total lack of humility is weird to me, and and I it's funny. You know, again, people are having this conversation about, you know, we had um, Rebecca Parsons calling in earlier this week and or maybe last week and talking about how difficult it was to run not as a Democrat mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And I that like really resonated with me. And I think the left has to be really serious about how they, they judge these candidates who are running as Democrats, even if ideologically they prefer not to. At the same time, on a national level. Even if it would be difficult, might be difficult to get through a primary campaign, it does strike me as obviously a benefit to not have that D- Democrat D hanging over your head. Because hell's bells, I've identified as a Democrat for most of my life, and I can't stand the idea of having to vote for a Democrat. And while I no. might like stomach it for someone like Bernie, who's identified as an independent his whole life, most people don't have that record of willingness to be adversarial to the Democratic Party. And it was kind of honestly a fluke that he managed to get elected as an independent. It's just because he's from kind of a wonky state where people go for that sort of thing or he moved Mm -hmm. he's not even from like he moved to a wonky (laughs) state where people go for that sort of thing you know from new york so i don't know how realistic it is to like hold everybody else to the bernie standard but i also do appreciate that a lot of people you know are attracted fundamentally to the idea of someone who is willing to hold themselves out as an independent and i don't know what that means if what works in a primary context doesn't in a general and the other way around what that means about the viability of these left candidates but it's a it's a puzzle that needs to be figured out oh i i completely agree and like most people like i'm a teacher like i talk to other teachers and stuff and like i mean and i i coach so like parents and all this other stuff (laughs) (laughs) and i i want to make a point about that in a second, but the, like these people are good people. Like I'm in South Texas. Like these, mm. like most of these people are good, hardworking people. They just don't know or care to know anything about economics. Mm. And like, I don't blame them. Mm. I don't blame them, but they, they, everybody like, Oh, I'm socially, I'm socially really liberal, but I, I just don't know about the economy. Like I have kids like in, in my, in my class, like talking about, Oh, Biden's spending too much money. Yeah. And I'll be like, wait, let's, let's, yeah, let's work through this a second. Oh, like, I listened to, like, I, who was I talking to? I was on the, oh, I was on the Hill. And, you know, um, doing a, a segment last week when I was co-hosting. And, you know, you know, as an aside, it wasn't the subject of the, sub- uh, of the, of the segment, but um, mm-hmm. Kim made some reference to, you know, spending and inflation. And I was like, oh, well, Kim, like, I just had an economist on bad faith. And he was explaining that, like, that you know, Biden spending has nothing to do with inflation. It's like a supply side issue. And it's the same as the 1970s and all the stuff that, you know, Dr. Uh, Professor uh, Kaboob explained. And even Kim like was like, wait, really? Like, but this oh, is just, wow. like something that like people don't know. And I don't, but I, I didn't know until I did that interview. Right. But like the idea that people are spending all of this energy on Joe Rogan, when we could be spending all of this airtime explaining to Americans that like inflate all the things that Biden should be blamed for inflation is not one of them. And that actually spending is good. Like, it's just so frustrating. (laughs) It's a little too convenient, no? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are saying, you know, like I saw um, Pascal Robert, who's been on the podcast before, saying this is all a distraction and we shouldn't even be giving oxygen to it. And like, fair enough. I mean, I I struggle with it because this is the juicy stuff. Like, no one wants to be no one wants to be sitting through a lecture. Like, I I had a long day of work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, but my point about. the other one I told him to talk about schools, 
the, like, uh, the man, some, I think it might have been Carol last week. She was great or not mm-hmm. last week, earlier in the week, mm-hmm. but talking about how like a lot of, uh, you know, left liberals, they're not business owners. They're not running mm-hmm. for local office. They're not on school boards. Like I, I, as a teacher, it's so frustrating. Like we have like zero time to teach to this standardized test. And it's like essentially propaganda for the most part. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. Cause I teach history, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, an, it's really annoying. It's really frustrating. So like one of my goals, like I want to not say like, who am I, but like, I want to like try to run for school board eventually, like be, be in part of like the curriculum side of school. But like, I feel like there's a big issue of, us being very, very online, very, very online. Yeah. I, someone, someone, um, added me and I follow them and I hope they DM me about this. Um, she's a professor who says she like, she, she says she's heard me talk about the Powell memo on the show before and how Republicans had this very like, um, deliberate effort to change how America is run in the 1970s. Absolutely. They had like a a plan with bullet points and they executed it from a right wing media campaign to infiltrating the courts and da, da, da. And they had this like 30 year plan that all came to fruition around the turn of the century and how Democrats kind of just feel like they're just reactionary. Like they're just reacting to the way the changes happen instead of purposefully trying to change the world and bend the arc of history and stuff. And I think you're right. We do have to start thinking about a plan and like it's it's a delicate balance because I know that so many leftists are frustrated about the idea that there's this twenty thirty year horizon when our needs are so exigent, but it needs to be kind of both. There needs to be like a short term plan and a long term plan. And our frustration with Democrats who want to like make us have false hope in a long plan that also they don't actually plan to execute, <laughs> um, no. should not prevent us from having some real significant longer goals. And I think that's what's so inspiring about people like Shama Sawant and the Socialist Alternative that. People have more faith in their longer term plans because at the same time, they're willing to be adversarial and do more direct action stuff in the short term. No, she 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 really is. It, it, I mean, honestly, yeah, like she she's an inspiration. I will say, though, that that episode was a little frustrating going around in circles. I know. I know. <laughs> and I, I love says, Chris Hedges. Like, I love I Chris Hedges. I look up to him a lot. Same. And like, I'm fine with him having like saying his spiel. But at a certain point, it's like, OK, well, then. Not what do we do? Because I I get like there needs to be act. There needs to be a movement. There needs to be to, that corresponds with it. But no, it was it was frustrating. Um, feeling very dismissed. Like the question was dismissed almost. Yeah, which you know I don't know. I don't want to like get back into it. But it's <laughs> completely fine to say I don't think the priority of the left needs to be electoral politics. In fact, it's completely divest. Let's not even do it. Like and I, don't I would agree. honestly probably agree with that. Uh, like, I. I don't i'm not there yet but like i completely understand that perspective and god like inshallah like i won't argue with it like go forth but you however no but that's not what they said right they said don't sit out the election okay so then i said what should we do then and then that then there was like a bunch of like lack of clarity about okay but like there is an election coming what do we do then okay sit it sit it out then we can ignore it move on to the next topic but if we're not sitting it out i need you to tell us what we should do because there's perhaps Marianne and all these candidates, like who knows what's going to happen and let's pave the way for the best possible outcome if we're going to pay attention to this. But anyway, I don't want to belabor that point. I appreciate you calling in, Ryan, and I'm glad you got to say your your piece this time and more applause (laughs) for all of the teachers doing the Lord's work. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. It's Chris. What's up? 
Good evening, Bree. Nice to hear from you. Just as a uh, one thing that I noticed that you do and other people do is it's, I think it's Chatterton, not Chatterson, but I don't want to be too much of a graper. What did I say? Chatterson? No, it's Chatterton. Yeah. Somebody else said Chatterson earlier. It could have been me. I'd be saying things, but go ahead and say (laughs) it, Chris. Um, So, you know, on this misinformation stuff, you know, the the thing I found most interesting about the podcast, and I listened to all of it um, earlier today, uh, was that there wasn't, there was a lot of labeling Joe Rogan as a misinformer, but not a lot of substantive pushback Mm -hmm. on that. I mean, you even said you would listen to the two that are really in question, McCullough and, uh, and Malone. And it mm-hmm. caused you to kind of Google some things and look up some things. And so I was, I was hoping that there would be a little more substance on that and uh, was a little sad that there wasn't. Especially well, I got from the impression immediately Freddie. that no one had really listened. And That's yeah, I, I invited Freddie on to play that role. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be very transparent here. I was composing a panel. I wanted people who had different perspectives, right? And I thought that Freddie was going to play the role of the kind of Rogan defender, um, he was not on the contrarian, and he fully would not. Which no, is that he, I had to do it. <laughs> the so what I saw with Freddie, you know, he one thing that he said was something along the lines of when you go out to the grocery store, Joe Rogan is teaching people to look at other people in the grocery store as the enemy, and I frankly just one hundred percent find that to be intellectual garbage. I mean, the people that do that is the mainstream media, period. It is MSNBC who mm-hmm. did it about Trumpers for, for four or five years now, six years since 2016, seven years. Jesus Christ, this mm-hmm. time's flying. Mm-hmm. And and Fox News on the other side, and New York Times and Washington Post to allude to the two institutions that Taylor Lorenz is at do the same stuff. And, and they are the ones that are training everybody to look at other people as as threats and that like to make the point that Joe Rogan, who has a much broader intellectual uh, diversity crowd on his podcast than any of those mainstream media organizations Mm -hmm. is just, it's really um, it's, it's weird and wrong and like just it's dishonest from an intellectual perspective. Um, You know, Freddie also brought up Russia a lot and he seems that to me is an illusion of a belief in, in Russiagate. I'm not super familiar with his work, but the way he's talking about Russia uh, server farms to host, you know, Rogan in the future, if he were to get banned from, uh, from uh, Spotify, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Spotify are kind of the global public square right now. You know, like AT&T, I was in a, a space earlier, a call in earlier with uh, Taibbi and Greenwald, which is very interesting. And a point that Glenn made was AT&T isn't going to prevent Roger Stone. I think he said Alex Jones, but Roger Stone, I think, is more relevant from having phone service because he organized a riot. Mm-hmm. Like these things are, are essential items. I mean, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, y- you can't even like to run a business. You need to have a Facebook and an Instagram probably, and and you don't have to, but it certainly makes running a business a lot easier. And it, it is 
these are global public square places and we don't throw people out of out of cell phone coverage because they say bad things on cell phones mm -hmm. we just don't and so i think that that's a, a lens that we need to focus through this sub her focus on the subject more through because because rogan brought up a few great points like and and about misinformation in the last year and things that were labeled misinformation that mm -hmm. are now accepted more as fact you know mm -hmm. taibi and matt arfala who i wish would have been able to stay on the bernie campaign I, I wish that we were better as as leftists in accepting that things people did 10 years ago are things they did 10 years ago and that their work in the last several years has been massively helpful and intelligent and not of the nature of the things that Matt Orfala had said in the past. But they released a video where, you know, what Matt Orfala does, he's really good, like, case study in cutting up uh, media uh, things and putting them in to show you how they do it. and the narrative early in COVID that uh, there's no chance that this is a lab leak thing. And now it's, yeah. you know, more likely than not, it was, I don't know if we'll ever know for sure that it was. So it's a like lab leak, leak lab. the fact that it's air, it's lab leak is the fact that it was air transmitted. It's the cloth lab, uh, cloth masks not being effective. Like there's a whole, there's like five or six very specific points that oh, if you were to have said them on cable news, at any point in the last like two years, you would have been told you were misinformation and you would have been demonetized. And now it's like totally. knowledge. Yeah. I think that's a really strong point. Totally. I mean, say what you want to say, but like that stuff is true. Like, I don't know. what to, I, Like so right. people, the people who are criticizing Rogan would have a lot more credibility if they would acknowledge that aspect of it. Right. And the failures of the mainstream media. And thank God there are places like Rogan where those ideas can germinate and people who are talking about lab leak theory and stuff could go and talk about it in a way that it can trickle down. And, you know, then, you know, we had we did an episode. I did an episode last, I think, June with Thomas Frank about it. But like we were right. starting out on the vanguard of that. That was, you know, it was able to percolate in places like. Um, right. Uh, the what do you call it? I think I don't can't remember if they were on Rising or they were Chris, um, uh, Breaking Point at that point. Uh, but you know, with Crystal and Sager and other kind of independent media outlets who were able to to speak to those things. Otherwise, right. it would have happened. Yeah. So I mean, and there's just endless misinformation. There's a allusion to it with uh, some of this war stuff that's being pushed now with Ukraine. Uh, mm -hmm. There's misinformation in that. Nobody discusses that. And mm -hmm. just ultimately to make one last point on this, and you still have a long queue and you've been on for almost three hours, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But And that Matt gentleman I noticed got back in the queue, so maybe he can get up and figure out how so. to unmute his uh, microphone. But, um, you know, nobody calls that out. And if there was more substance on where exactly – Joe Rogan was wrong. I'd be mm -hmm. more open to the critiques, but there just isn't. Yeah. And from anywhere, just from anywhere. Yeah, really. that's so the, that's, that's the thing. Like I, I listened to the podcast and I can't tell, like I was sitting there thinking, Oh God, like it would take me like a week to comb through every single thing that was said and read all these reports. And even then, I don't even know that I have the expertise to be able to, you know, tell if this stuff is right or wrong. It would be really helpful to me if there were a credible source that had actually gone through this and that I didn't see any, which, and I also don't want any position to represent the stuff that I've heard as correct. Cause I can't, I can't verify that either, but it is deeply frustrating that people who want to make an attack on the guy, like if I can't tell if it's right or wrong, I'll stay out of it. I'm not going to say that it's all the gospel, the Lord's gospel, but I'm also not going to sit here and call the guy misinformation. That's why in the, on the podcast, we were like doing like a counterfactual where it was like, okay, well, if he did lie, 
what what should we have happen? And I I was like, actually no, let's call it Professor X because I'm not I don't want Rogan to be right. the stand in for the liar because he like no one here has done enough research to actually tell me where the lie is. You know? Right. Yeah. Totally. It's exactly true. One last thing, and then I'll let you go. I was just curious. I was on with you on Monday evening a few nights ago, mm-hmm. and I noticed when you posted it up that uh, that you cut it right before I was on, maybe a caller or two before. I just wanted to check and make sure I didn't say no, anything that not, bothered you or was offensive or that so I was rude or anything. So a couple of times I've posted, and the end of the episode has gotten cut off, and I've had to like talk to the call-in people about getting it restored. Like The dating episode was five hours and initially only like two and a half posted, and they were able to restore it. So I think they're still working on the last episode. I talked to them about that today. Um, okay. but it's never, All right. I was just it's worried. Just a I was just thing. worried. I said something that upset you and I didn't know my intention. I appreciate you. No, very not much. at all. Please. I appreciate you always, Chris. Thank you. And thank you, you for flagging that Matt's in the queue. You too. I'm going to make Matt the next right. caller. Are you ready, Matt? Are you prepared? Do you got your ducks? Did I now? succeed? Yes. Did this work? Matt, uh, I can it hear was, you. It was so difficult. Um, yeah. Thank <laughs> you so much for the first time calling in. I don't know why I wasn't able to get it unmuted before. I'm not going to take up much of your time either. And big respect to the gentleman before me. I believe his name was Chris. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Chris for being awesome. Um, so my question to you is about community engagement. Mm-hmm. I'm 29. I recently started reorienting my life towards political activism and advocacy. So I got my first undergraduate degree last year. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of people in my boat either, you know, 22-year-olds are people who are trying to get back into activism and advocacy. Um, And we, (laughs) there's so many wonderful people and campaigns and causes out there we're never going to come into contact with. And it can be really difficult to find the ideal people you'd work for, the people you would sacrifice for, volunteer for, donate for. And I was hoping that you could somehow use your platform to help maybe lay out some endorsements or roadmaps for us. If not, just having like an updating list of candidates that you support in the upcoming elections, organizations, nonprofits. Well, I am participating in a candidate forum with Marianne Williamson and Katie Halper and Crystal Ball next week. I got to say, a bunch of you are big mad about it on the Internet. A bunch of you are big mad about it because you don't believe in electoral politics anymore. And you think that I'm sheep hurting people back in the Democratic Party and all of these things and blah, blah, blah. So there's many YouTube videos I saw percolating today about how I've been corrupted by Katie Halper and all this kind of stuff. And guys, look, I understand. I don't know how many hours of, of, of verbiage I have to put on the Internet before you feel like you understand where I'm coming from. And I understand your skepticism. I'm not mad at you. But, like, I fully agree with every critique of Democratic Party and running as a Democrat. I completely get it. But I'm not going to sit here and listen to Rebecca Parsons, who you all liked, get on this call in and tell you that she would love to not run as a Democrat, but she literally can't get donations through Act Blue unless she does. And tell her, oh, well, fuck you. Good luck. Waste all your money. And drive yourself into the poorhouse for nothing, for a symbolic campaign, because I'm going to be in my fifis about you having a D next to your name. Like, I don't know what to do about this scenario. I'm not, I don't know that I would tell anybody to give money to a Democratic candidate. I don't know that I'm there. But I certainly, as a journalist, am willing to platform and talk to people and ask them the questions about why should I trust you running as a Democrat? Are you willing to be adversarial in a way that these uh, squad, some of these squad members are not? 
that is that's the role I can play. And that's what I plan to play next week on this candidate forum. And that's the role that I play when I interview this woman who's running for Senate in Ohio. You know, I asked her, are you willing to be adversarial? Are you, do you have a critique of Nancy Pelosi? Do you have a critique of Chuck Schumer? What would you have done in the $15 minimum wage scenario? That's the best I can do. But I I know that some of you were in a place where you're like, no Dems ever canceled. And I respect that. I respect it. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to tell you you're stupid for voting third party. You know, that's not how I feel. But I'm not 100% in a place where I'm going to ignore the reality of elections happening and the fact that we're better off in a world where Nina Turner is in office and not Chantel Brown. Like, I'm, I, you, can, you can tell me what you think about that. Tell me what you think about that, Matt. I don't know. Well, I'm, this is my personal opinion. I'm in favor of taking the Democratic Party over from the inside. I'm not an outside person. But a campaign, when I use the word campaign, it doesn't have to be for an individual either. It can be for mm. a cause, mm. you know, like the, the fight for 15 or something mm. like that. Um, but there's a lot of people that are going to be new to this who I've, I've seen on your chats. Other people are like, how can I get involved? Mm-hmm. I was just hoping that you with your platform would be able to help us out a little bit more. It's one of the reasons why I was disappointed that your discord wasn't functional. Cause I, I thought I could hop in and be like, Hey, this is my situation. Anyone need help with anything? Can you direct me to some Slack groups or something? You know, work remotely. I'll I move. have no idea how that, yeah. like that wasn't, I, I still don't really know. Like I said, the episode of what a discord is, but here's what I will say. One candidate forum it's happening Two, i would say um immediately our reddit got shut down we ne- we had a reddit for one day and it got shut down and i know that a lot of other podcasts get a lot of traction and have a significant community that is built up around reddit you can't start your own Reddit. I don't know what these rules. I think it's like Wikipedia where you can't edit your own Wikipedia page. By the way, if somebody wants to change my Wikipedia picture to a more flattering image of me, <laughs> I wouldn't hate it. <laughs> um, but uh, if you guys, I can't direct you to start a Reddit community or whatever, but I think that it's a real detriment that that kind of thing doesn't exist. If we do a discord, like I have to like police it and I, and, and basically what happened, I think, is that the mods just gave up on our Discord. And I don't, I can't, like, hold them to anything. Like, they're just volunteers and I can't, you know, it is what mm. it is. But Reddit is not my responsibility, right? Discord, I, I have responsibility over. Yeah. Reddit is, like, public. And if it goes crazy, it's not really my fault. And I don't have to police it. And that's on you guys. So I highly encourage you guys to start a community there and help each other um, identify folks and that sort of thing. All right. Well, if you need an assistant for your Discord or anything else, you know, just let me know where to apply. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. I'm trying not to, I'm not trying not to free labor folks, but I appreciate the it, sentiment. <laughs> it's all good. And Bree, thank you so much. I mean, you are fantastic and an incredibly important voice right now. And I'm really glad of that. I, I found your channel. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful night. You too. That's very sweet of you, Matt. I appreciate it. Now, Eric Gray, I just spoke to you. So I'm going to hop over you. I don't know how you ended up in the queue so high. Um, but I'm going to take Michael with the Bernie meme pick. Unmute yourself, Michael, and let me know if you're asking for my donations. <laughs> Am I unmuted? There you go. What's on oh, your mind, cool. Michael? Uh, first time caller here from the great state of West Virginia. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> What's on so, your mind? So I work at a construction company in uh Charleston mm-hmm. and it's a obviously a very conservative state I'm like it's really funny I don't like talk politics to 
anyone else in my office, but I would be quietly watching YouTube videos of some pretty radical left-wing things. I walk outside the office and everyone's talking like Fox News stuff. Mm. But um, Like what kinds of things are they talking about? Well, I mean, now I'm talking about... Oh, okay. Well, here, let me tell you this, actually. My boss, mm-hmm. like, he is a, the guy who, like, kind of is in charge of everything. Like, my boss's boss, he is, like, he's a very smart guy, very experienced man in terms of, like, running the business. Mm-hmm. And he's a nice guy. He's funny. But, like, man, when it comes to, like, like just how culturally conservative he is, like, when it comes to uh, just, like, you know, just the classic culture war stuff. Mm-hmm. He is as reactionary as it gets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, um, let's see, like, so he, okay, there was a thing circulating a while ago. It was like, um, some company had like done some diversity training that was like saying some like, whatever it is like, oh, you know, like it's, uh, why you should feel bad to be white or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, but it's never that. I mean, that's how people characterize it. But it's never why you should feel bad to be white. It's always like, it's a privilege. It's a, they're like privilege scales is what it yeah, is. Yeah, it was, it was something like that. And he was very upset about that. And he like mm-hmm. printed it off and like kind of would like, and there was like, I don't know, he, there's just a lot of stuff like that. And like, what I think it was Coca-Cola maybe. Mm-hmm. And whatever it was, he, he was just like, he's like, I don't want that, that drink in the office. I don't want any like Coca-Cola <laughs> products. And it's like, he had this long list out of like, don't drink Sprite, don't drink this, don't drink this. Like, he had all the brands out. Like, there's a subsidiary, don't drink any of that. He's just extremely mm. conservative. But what I was going to say, or my well, going to say is, like, sometimes I do, we'll have, like, a conversation with some of my employees. And they're, like, like I said, they're all nice guys, very conservative. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I do talk about where it's, like, we're definitely on the same page is when it comes to, like, very economic like i'm not gonna be bringing up you know the cultural stuff but if i like i will be talking about all the you know unions or wages or you know like jobs and uh manufacturing being outsourced and it's like we're speaking the same language like oh yeah i'm on board with that like we're you know we're having like that conversation it's like i don't think they realize you know like hey if you were in a you know some left-leaning circles right now like we'd all be speaking the same language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious. Let me, let me ask you this. Um, I'm always people, people think that I'm like not serious when I'm asking them these questions, but I know that I'm in a bubble and I'm desperate to know what people's perceptions are in other parts of the country. So how do you think a candidate like, you know, a Marianne Williamson would fly in West Virginia? Someone who is talking about, both the kind of more social contracty, let's pull together, let's have a version of American patriotism that respects the beautiful things this country has done, but not the jingoistic crap and, you know, bring the troops home, but also let's do economic populism and, you know, corporate corruption is bad. Like, do you think that someone like her who also has this kind of like coastal, um, you know, spiritual, you know, whatever, quote unquote, orb lady veneer. How do you think that's going to fly in West Virginia? So like the first 90% of your statement there, I'm like, oh yeah, that would fly. But then it's just like that really last bit. It's like, cause I love Marion Williamson. I, mm-hmm. during the 2020 primary, like, you know, like, like the initial debates where I saw her talking, I, I didn't know her at all. And, you know, like I said, she's awesome. 
But when you first listen to her and she, you know, she does have that way that she talks, it does like kind of orb lady, crystal lady, whatever kind of thing. And you're like, you know, that's kind of your first impression. But if, mm-hmm. if you can get, like, but I, I actually listen to what she is saying, then you go, oh, wait, like she is, you know, I, I've over the last, ever since that primary ended or uh, over the past like year, like, like learning more about her and like really listening to her talk about everything. Like, oh man, this, she's like a, like a young female Bernie, but you know, even more intense, which I liked, but I, mm-hmm. her message I think would resonate great. It's just the, you know, <laughs> that, that orb lady vibe, I guess you would say. Yeah. I guess it just depends on if people can get enough exposure to her that she breaks through or like, if the media keeps her off, you know, off the stage and keeps the understanding of her very superficial. Yeah. Yeah, because she I saw where she went on Fox News, and I can't remember which uh, dumbass on that network she was talking to. But the like the the little uh, introduction, or it's like, all right, we're gonna be bringing on Marianne Williamson, and they uh, they showed like a quick clip of her from the debate, and like the one clip they showed of her was the one where she was you know preaching love and whatnot, and mm-hmm. like it was okay. Jesse Waters, yeah jesse waters mm-hmm. and it's just like okay i like i saw them like i already see what you're trying to do you're trying to but she this. then she killed that appearance like she did she a killed, really good job she killed the appearance but like yeah it's just yeah we, we know what we're saying it's like yeah. the, they're they're trying to take the one thing that she said where it was kind of sounded a little weird a little hippie a little whatever mm-hmm. and took that and tried to make it like you know but then you you know let her let her talk enough and be like well, hang on a second no she's 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 not saying anything wrong at all Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I hear you. And I am, I'm, I'm just curious about how that's going to pan out. I mean, what's your experience of how people received Bernie? Was there also a transition period between maybe I don't know how much, I don't know much about him. He's like a socialist from Vermont to being like, Oh, okay. I'm actually kind of open to this because of what he's saying. Or was it immediately like, I like Bernie. I know Bernie. He seems like. So mm-hmm. one of my, uh, one of my friend's parents, uh, like they were like he, he was brought up in like a very like very conservative Christian household like very you know they're, they're they were like not voting for any Democrats and his mom voted for Trump in the primary and the general but his dad voted for Bernie in the primary but then I I don't know what he did in the general but like mm-hmm. I know his dad voted for it's like um yeah I feel like it's like a lot of like <laughs> it's like in West Virginia it's like you're like Trump or Bernie Mm. Or you're, or you're like my dumbass dad who voted for Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> <laughs> Stop! Leave your dad alone. Well, tell me, kidding. tell me, what was your dad's rationale? What did he say? Um, he, I think the bet, like the most charitable way to put it, I guess he saw Bernie as a little bit like, I guess he. He was a little skeptical, I guess, of the people that surrounded Bernie. I guess he thought, like, mm. okay, this is what Sorry. I think, this, this is what I think he thought actually. Like, yeah. okay, the, you, if Bernie gets in there, he's just going to be a bull. He's not going to work with anyone, not get anything done. It's like, but like Elizabeth Warren will actually work with, you know, he knows she knows how to work with people and blah blah blah. And I'm just like, you know, I think that's the exact wrong thing because in my <laughs> mind, I'm like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean that about your dad. No, it's exactly. I'm he, just having some fun. Um, yeah, the way I thought about it, it's like, okay, it's like, I feel like Elizabeth Warren would be a, like, you know, a slightly more progressive 
like Obama, but like at the end of the day, still getting next to nothing done. Mm. And you still have to deal with the mansions and the cinemas of the world. Mm-hmm. But like Bernie is the man who would have said, listen, I know who my enemies and my friends are. Joe Manchin is not my friend. Joe Biden's mm-hmm. all work with Joe Manchin. You're not going to work with Joe Manchin. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Don't don't treat him as a friend. Treat him as an enemy. Be combative. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, you know, a bunch of people were playing that um, Biden clip from today talking about how uh, Mitch McConnell is his friend. And a lot of people pointed out that, you know, Bernie does say stuff like that, too. He certainly has said Biden is, is his friend. And, you know, we all loved when Bernie said Henry Kissinger is not my friend. But unfortunately, he has said a lot of these other jokers are. And I don't yeah. I don't I know, know that. That's, that's yeah. certainly been a little slightly disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Here it is, actually. From Vice President Harris, Majority Leader Schumer, Mitch McConnell. Mitch, I don't want to hurt your reputation, but. We really are friends. <laughs> well, is, is Biden and, trying to play uh, some And that is not a, an epiphany we're having. I'm sorry? Yeah. I says, is Biden trying to play some 40 chess and, like, have McConnell lose his next race or something? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish it were that. But, unfortunately, I, it just feels like super sincere, super sincere malarkey. Um, but thank you for calling in, Michael, and thank you for giving me that much-needed perspective um, for this gal and her D.C. bubble. Oh, yeah. Anytime. I do have one question, though. Yeah, of course. When are you going to go on the Joe Rogan experience? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'd love to. He he follows me on Twitter. I've been trying to play it cool and not like hop in the DMs or anything. But everyone should feel free to at 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 would be Goldberg to go on Bad Faith and at Joe Rogan to say uh, let bring Brianna on the Joe Rogan experience. We obviously have a lot I, to talk about. Hey, I think you'd be a, a great uh a great a great voice now because i don't want to hold you on the last thing i want to say like he has brought on like you know really good progressive voices like uh bernie and um cornell west and it's like mm-hmm. and when he brings those people on it's like it's awesome it's like mm-hmm. oh that's what i want to see but i'm like he just doesn't bring enough people on i like people go like you know he brings on people from all different uh like backgrounds and whatnot i'm like yeah he does but i genuinely feel like he's brings on a little bit more you know, it's like, yeah, he's got Bernie and Cornell West and, you know, not a whole. Super- yeah, I thought he had, um, I know people feel some kind of way about him, um, but Jesse Single was on there within the last year or so. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's probably hard for him to find people who are on the left who are not like, you know, kind of majority report types. Exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, there's only so many folks. I mean, they've obviously had Crystal and Kyle on. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you need, you need to get, yeah, you need to get on there. You'd be another, another like you know, be like, oh, she is a very like very progressive, uh, left leaning lady, but is like you know. Yeah, I think we'd uh, have fun. You, you could talk off, off the ledge with all, a lot of the you know like stupid cultural. I would, I would love to. Shit. I'd be I'd be very prepared. I promise. Also, the one I really want to go on though is Russell Brand. I'm obsessed with Russell Brand. I want him oh, to come really? on Bad Face. So at at Russell Brand, he's the one. He's the one that I really want. Um, but thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. Oh no, I appreciate it a lot. Uh, you guys have a good night. Thanks you for having too. me on. Appreciate it a lot. All right, Andy, you're up next. Oh, and Fran Lebowitz. I'm desperate to interview Fran Lebowitz. Um, but uh, Andy, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Well, hi, Bree. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. It's nice to hear your voice, Andy. Um, I will say. Um, 
you I think you have changed my mind as far as like because I was one of those like um Libby uh let's uh let's string Joe Rogan up types but <laughs> <laughs> but I will I mean I mean I uh I don't really listen to this podcast outside of the few times he's had Bernie or Cornell West on I I don't I, I you know I'm not I think at this point I'm not I'm not in support of him getting like deep platform or anything, but I'm not going to listen to this podcast anytime soon unless he decides to have you on or some other progressive. <laughs> um, I did want to share a quick anecdote because the caller before me did, you know, inspire me to do that. Uh, as you know, I'm in college now, and it's my experience that this is it's a particularly conservative space, which I guess was already anticipating, and. One of the things I've been running into a lot is uh, my microeconomics professor. He's, uh, I mean, I feel like most econ professors are pretty conservative. Mm. So, you know, he, he lets his point of view um, be known pretty apparently in most lectures. And I think you know, he says a lot of stuff that I disagree with. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't know if I should ever, like, you know, try to challenge him on that because at the same time, like, I disagree with him. But I don't know if I have, like, the information on me to, like, really, like, you know, challenge him on it. And then if I do, I might well, now just... you know how Joe Rogan feels. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to go up against an expert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I don't want to embarrass myself. And especially if it's, like, for for a class that's, like, in the, like, in the long run, not that important to me. Mm. I don't know. So I'll, that's been my experience so far. I think for the moment, I've just kind of been, like, keep you know keep it pushing and keep my mouth shut um and hopefully you know just pass it but um i did want to say though you know with all this uh hubbub with joe rogan and this conversation about deplatforming and everything i just feel like we're headed into a like intellectual but also very literal dark ages and i feel like if we're not going to do anything about like I don't know how to call it, but how to like describe it other than like, um, like content moderation or whatever. I just feel like we're just going to wake up in that Monty Python scene uh, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where the corpse collector is, you know, he starts yelling out with his uh, corpse cart, "Bring out your dead!" Because we're just like, you know, I don't know, like we're just. It feels like nobody has any kind of respect for intellectuals anymore and um i don't know well i would argue that perhaps the lack of respect for intellectuals is as much the fault of intellectuals undermining themselves with getting so much stuff wrong uh as people like you know joe rogan who might point that out you know what i mean yeah it's funny because it's like I would hardly think, I mean, look at me in my life and my, you know, kind of educational um, ambitions. And I would hardly, you know, think that anyone could characterize me as being like anti-intellectual as it were. But I got to say, like after the entire Obama administration, where we put all of this faith in technocrats, you know, Thomas Frank has obviously written so compellingly about the democratic faith in technocracy and how that's driven us right off the cliff. You have all these economists right now lying through their teeth about what's causing inflation and relying on the fact that people are deferring to their expertise, you know, and on and on and on. It's not, I think, I think sometimes some, sometimes it gets characterized as anti-intellectualism, but what it really is is just like 
a lost faith in the traditions that used to guide us. And I think you're right. There is a hole where people can start to follow stuff that is not true and does not make any more sense than the lies we've been told. But, you know, I don't know that I, it's the right thing is to push people back to following like the, the, the Pied Piper that has like the fancy degree, even though he's still wrong. And I don't know what kind of public trust in institutions. I mean, that's part of why I'm very curious about this idea of a Marianne Williamson candidacy, because it does feel like, I know the left is like, there can't be leaders. It's not about leaders. It's like a leaderless movement. But sometimes I think there do need to be more figures that we hold in public trust, whether it's like a religious figure, like someone like Reverend Barber or Cornel West, or, you know, it was Bernie for a while, or someone like Marianne who might be able to leverage people's sense of community into a common sense of trust again. But I don't know. It does feel like, like I said earlier, like Joe Biden recognizes accurately that we need to, quote unquote, heal the soul of this nation, but it needs to not be a platitude. Right, right. Yeah, I think everything you said is totally fair. And uh, I'll be honest, I don't know what the right answer is either. I just, I don't know. I feel this is one quote from this old ContraPoints video that she put out a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, something to the effect of people, people think that we're in the in the forum, but we're really in the circus. And mm-hmm. I, I think that yeah, we are in the age of spect- you know, political and literal spectacle. And I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, who knows? Yeah, I, I like that quote. We got to get ContraPoints back on the pod. I, I think she's great. Um, but thank you, Andy. I always like when you call in. Thank you, Bree. All right, Tabitha. I am losing a little steam. We're over the three-hour mark, but I want to get you in there and maybe one more after that. I see the queue is long. I love you guys in this queue. Queuing up. Like, it really warms my heart to see all of this interest. But um, I'm a little hungry and sleepy. Uh, and I'm moving this weekend, and I need to do a lot of laundry tomorrow. So, Tabitha, unmute yourself and tell me what's on your mind. Hi, Bree. Um, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. My brain is, like, racing with everyone's, like, different stuff that they want to cover. Um, but I was like, okay, I'll settle on on, <laughs> on Joe Rogan. And when I think of Joe Rogan, I think of, like, where I grew up, Miami. And... Mm like South Florida and how like literally all the lefties have given up on them, <laughs> you know, mm. like they, they just don't know what to do with Florida because Cubans and Venezuelans, which I am both of. <laughs> so mm. I can give some insight on that, I guess. And um, I feel I mean, like Florida is famously the place where Trump won, but so did a $15 minimum wage and the Democratic Party seems to not really care about that or see that as any evidence that there's promise in the state. But, you know, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. That's like part of the problem. Like uh, all of South Florida is really independent thinking because we're literally the most diverse places in the country. Like a third mm. black, a third like Hispanic, a third white, like a good chunk of mm. like mixed people, you know. And mm-hmm. to the diverseness and thought the same way that like the the really left like you and like breaking points and I even think Joe Rogan because like when I think of Joe Rogan I I think of like the people I grew up around you know that they mm-hmm. just want to ask really deep questions and ask all these kinds of things and 
there's just like such a dismissal of that curiosity of that like really deep thought you know Mm -hmm. and I feel like we don't accept that a lot in in the left spaces we're just like oh yeah but this is the consensus right and there is no consensus right now like we we need to be okay not knowing yeah, I think that, I mean, I hate to make everything about this. I mean, I don't hate it. I would love to make everything about this, obviously. But, you know, that is the thing about force the vote where, okay, let's say that you have a better idea of how to do it or, you know, you want to workshop it a little bit and make different asks. It That's not how the posture of the conversation was. You know, Sam Cedar, with all due respect, he talks now like, oh, I just thought it should be differently done. Like, no, that's not at all what you were saying. First, you were 100% for it. And then you were 100% against it because Jimmy Dore. And now you talk sometimes like, oh, it should have been different asks. But I put to you in our conversation, like it could be any number of asks. But because there's such a consensus orientation, like orientation, even among the left, it had to be like, Yes or no, there couldn't even be this moment of uncertainty where we tried to like just suss things out and figure it out together as a community. And when David Sirota entered the chat and was like, well, I think these asks were different. My response was like, well, let's not be adversarial, David. Like, I like your ass. Let's add them to the list. Like, why not? Let's ask for all of these things. Like, I, I really appreciate your insights and contributions as someone who's been on the Hill for like 20 years. And I don't know any of these things. So let's do this. Um, yeah. But that it does feel like you just have to have a take. Everyone has to have a take and no one will admit to any uncertainty uncertainty or not knowing the exact path forward. And that really stymies us as a community. Honestly, I like was hundred percent with you on force the vote. I like, I was such an AOC stand. All right. That meant to be, that was supposed to be applause, but I hit the Star Trek one. No, like I, sorry. I was such an AOC stand that I was like so devastated when she like didn't even consider it she didn't even like she just like whisked mm-hmm. it away i was like what the fuck <laughs> like what didn't you come in here holding like a, a green new deal like right in front of pelosi's office like yeah i know? was there i was i was the aoc stand numero uno <laughs> I, like, I mean i was, I was, so I was covering her so closely yeah mm-hmm. and like it was so devastating to like to see like innovation you know like a completely new turn coming and they just ran away from it like it was like you know and that sucks because we we need that new thought we need that new like how are we going to be the age of aquarius if we don't like (laughs) fuck shit up you know like yeah the most disappointing part of it for me is learning i think over the course of the past year it's come to my attention that truly the only reason they all were so immediately against it was like their feeling like it was a personal attack and their their like apathy for Jimmy Dore, which is just so like I like I don't even blame Jimmy. I'm sorry. Like if it's a good idea and you're going to ignore it because of like your personal fifis, that is like almost worse to me than having a substantive disagreement with the strategy, you know? Like, and, and to, and to, and to block out the fact that like Cornel West was for it and Crystal and Kyle were for it and Richard Wolf was for it and I was for it. And like, there were myriad other people who were substantive and mattered, Justin Jackson, you know, and to just choose one voice in the middle of it all that you thought was being too aggressive and then to ignore 
you know, the will of so many people and a, and a sincerely good idea for that reason. It's just, it's so demoralizing. It's like you, you want to think that there is a more, I don't know, some kind of institutional process or people in their office and who could speak in their ear and give them some insight. And it just makes you feel like they're so much farther away in some ways than I would have even imagined. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that they're afraid, like, like afraid for themselves? out of fear of what they will do to them. Of what? Like not getting reelected or like losing their committee appointments that they're are kind of whack anyway. (laughs) Um, I think, I think like, like tear them down, like, like Ralph Nader them. What's so bad about Ralph Nader's life? Nothing, but I mean, like, like this, is, this is what I'm platform. saying. It's like, it's like, what's this? Chris Hedges is, is teaching like young men in prison. And like the, the Bernie's saying, I don't want to get Ralph Nader. I'm sorry. Ralph Nader is a middle-class American living at, at a ripe old right. age and in good health. Like what is the, what is the, I, I pray to God I end up like Ralph Nader. Are you kidding me? Like what is the, like, are we, we're not talking about people getting assassinated, but that I can understand a kind of conversation about that. But if, if we're saying the thing that's apparently striking fear in the hearts of everybody is that they grow to a ripe old age and are like considered by millions of people to be an American hero, a consumer protection advocate, and like a, a, a like a like a like a, a handsome swarthy king. Like, what is the I, problem? I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying, hundred <laughs> percent. But I mean, like, like think of the, the last people who try to do that, like Malcolm X and fucking. Martin Luther King, like, where'd they go? You know, like, okay. Like, so if if the argument is that you think, brave. if you're asking me, if you're asking me, do I think they are afraid of being assassinated? I have no evidence of that, and I think that they are very far from being Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, and I don't think they need to worry about that. I know at this to, juncture, to be truly, to be truly <laughs> brave is scary. You know, like to be truly like revolutionary, to be truly whatever is terrifying. So when they see something that you know. Is it, it's crossing that line, you know, it's, it's starting to become. Right. But, but, but this is what all the force of vote people and all the people who plan those Medicare for all rallies and stuff were saying is that they have so much less than these Congress people. They have yeah. so much less and they're willing to risk so much more. And they're tired of the whole focus being on the safety and mental well-being of a handful of folks whose entire job is to actually fight. Whereas people who are like, fast food service workers and nurses and teachers and stuff are giving up their weekends and their personal time and money they don't have to support those candidates and support these causes and are, and are being told that like, I'm, I have to worry about the mental well-being of somebody who's making a six figure salary to literally do this exact job that I'm doing for free. Yeah. I totally and like, agree. that's, that's what was so demoralizing around force the vote. And you have, you have Sam Cedar and them mocking and laughing the people who are taking the time out of their time to do these protests and go to these things from the comfort of their like COVID safe studio. And, and you have Congress people doing performative stunts on steps for moratoriums that don't matter anyway, because they're going to get invalidated by the Supreme court. And like you, I, like I understand the rage of people. I, no, I'm, I'm, one of those rage-filled people but like 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 uh like i was in dsa right i was a Mm co-chair for broward Mm -hmm. and i dropped out because i've got my kids and whatever and i can't keep giving free labor Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like especially if there's no support from from national right Mm -hmm. and it sucks because you're like pitching all these great ideas and you're pitching all this stuff and you're like like 
we couldn't even access our money. You know that? That we had like what do you like, mean? Like we we were we were trying to access our money, but we couldn't because uh, we were in the process of becoming a chapter or whatever. But we had like two hundred and eighty plus members on our list, mm. and we couldn't access our money because whatever bullshit, right? Like in the context and of the primary, that you couldn't access it and use it to. We were, do we stuff were trying or... to, like we were trying to like organize. We we're trying to do stuff. We we're trying to like get the stuff up and running, you know, because we're basically starting from scratch. But we got all these members. We have all. We know how much money is going into like our coming in from our chapter, you know, and we couldn't mm-hmm. use any of that money for like any supplies, any nothing. So we're all contributing, and we're all giving in time and like energy, and then like. For a national, be like, mm, yeah, I guess so. Oh, you need you need more members so that you can fill out your your committee. Oh, too bad, sorry. Like, we can't give you any money for for advertising. We can't give you any money for like doing like fundraisers. We can't give you any money for like doing the basic stuff that you're supposed to be doing because mm. whatever. And so again and again, like it's this leadership that like doesn't really. There's no, like, I don't understand the disconnect between the, the, the floor workers, I guess, and the, and the the office workers, you know, like, Mm -hmm. they're still relying on our unpaid labor, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's something to think about. I mean, I think about the model of the Black Panthers and how much support was given to participants and to communities being around them you know getting free lunch getting a kind of social support and community support and not to feel like it's constantly a a a one-way street is a real boon to an organization and again like that's something that socialist alternative heralds even though it's such a smaller organization and i'd love to see what would happen if socialist alternative got the kind of boost that dsa got out of the bernie campaign and really scaled up in that way you know i you know I, I I mean, I just love to see what happened. I mean, there's obviously the possibility that it ends up encountering some of the issues that DSA encounters just because it's a scale issue. And I don't want to be too negative on DSA, but I mean, I just, the ideological bit of socialist alternative makes me hope for more. So we'll see. Uh, thank you for calling in Tabitha and thank you for, thank you, you know, for trying me. and doing so much. And I, I look forward to future reports from South Florida. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And thank you for everything you do. Thanks. Oh, of course, it's it's a privilege, truly. Um, A, you're going to be the last caller. First letter, last caller. What's on your mind? Hey, I, I feel so bad I make you say A each time, but it's because I'm from India and I'm scared of the government. I understand. <laughs> so Do, would, you like me to, would you like me to call you something other than A? No, no, I just because it's awkward for you to say. I don't mind it as a name. Well, I don't mind. Some <laughs> people call me B. Like ah, Beyonce. Okay. <laughs> no, nobody calls me <laughs> <laughs> What's on your mind? Well, if you're losing steam, I don't know if it's a good end to get into this, but I actually want to respond to a previous episode, the one about the dating on the left. Sure, let's let's close out with something fun. Let's talk about <laughs> dating on the left. Well, I, I must say I was a bit taken aback by how um, essentially conservative i found the discourse a little bit especially when it came to the topic of marriage mm-hmm. um, you know just because i mean to me it would or to me and to my community here in india it would seem 
uh, you know, con- contradictory to be on the left and to be uh, considering marriage uh, as an institution. But I mean, then I was thinking perhaps it's because it's so part- both marriage and divorce are so particularly draconian here in India, like culturally, legally, etc. Maybe that's where we're more radicalized against it. But yeah. I was wondering how what like your sort of thoughts on that were well tell me a little bit more about how you perceive marriage as an institution does do you desire to be married are you married does it feel like something that's completely socially you're socially pressured to do but you don't have any organic desire for yes the the last one Mm. i'm i'm quite like i'm quite a hardliner against it actually i mean uh i've man you know i've managed to escape it thus far but uh Mm. like how old are you may i ask yeah, I'm 28. Okay, a marriageable, like, a very marriageable age, eh? Oh, very marriageable, <laughs> and in India, uh, it's, it's 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 you know it's getting to the point of perhaps being a bit too old, in fact. Mm. But um, but I mean, like, so in my friend circle, I mean, there's people who are like closer to their 40s, etc. Some of them kind of have emerged from uh, marriages, but everyone's kind of uh, co- coalescing around the point of view of just fine, like even if everything goes right, you know, like you know, actual bad scenarios where let's say you get beaten up, etc. aside, even when everything goes right, fundamentally as an institution, it's very antithetical to all kinds of freedoms, you know, just sort of the influx of a family you didn't ask for, meaning, you know, the family from the other side, which which mm-hmm. you also spoke about, right? Like, you know, you could fall in love with a good white person and then, you know, their family has all kinds of things mm-hmm. to say. Or when you spoke about how it's not, you know like in things in marriages come up which you just don't know to account for such as like the homeless example you guys were discussing um and how like that's just part of spending life with someone that you could always discover something you don't want but Mm. in having hitched your wagon to them in the sort of very concrete way financially legally etc that marriage does and like and divorce is you know divorce is almost as uh, oppressive institution as marriage because a, it's a tag you have to carry. It comes with the baggage it comes with. It's also quite cumbersome to get, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for all these reasons, it's... I'm wondering is maybe, is it more oppressive here? Are these both these institutions less oppressive in the States? Is that why the left is more open to it there? Well, I certainly think the stigma around divorce is obviously much less. Mm-hmm. And so, you know... You know, it's it's the I mean, every every everybody's idea of it ostensibly is a love marriage. And that what I was going to ask you before you asked me that question was how you how you conceive of love. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, I'm, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even I'm talking about love. I mean, arranged marriages are definitely um, as rotten as they sound. So that's not uh, even though, yes, that is a concept. Well, I don't that's know. Very Sometimes they sound pretty good to me at my big age. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. Um, but, you know, like, I mean, so in, in your world, if when you imagine like meeting someone and falling in love, how do you imagine yeah. that going? Like, what do you imagine happening? Well, uh, well, like what I OK, so sort of the first principles that I kind of agree on with are that there is, you know, one wants companionship and one wants constancy of some kind, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So to me, when I when I have fallen in love or when I imagine falling in love with, quote unquote, someone who's the one, at least for a bit, mm-hmm. um, the idea of like the idea of freedom, the idea of preserving freedom in how that relationship is arranged 
to me is paramount to minimizing the possibility of misery so by that i mean that even if one moves in together if you know there is the option of moving out if things are bad or um if you know all or like it's almost like marriage at least how it works here in india what it create i mean i don't want to particularize it to india if that's unnecessary because mm-hmm. i think it is part of marriage actually mm-hmm. across the world is that it you do sort of it comes with certain obligations and so it comes with a certain obligations just of interactions and uh, relationships outside of that person alone mm-hmm. which all and all can't be considered consensual and even when it's all nice and every, everyone's a, every, everyone involved is good it's still not entirely of one's own choosing and it also comes bundled in with certain expectations like that people almost default like i can imagine that even with sort of all my lefty views you know in a marriage i can imagine defaulting to certain expectations that just that i have just learned about the marriage and i'm sort of moving away from expectations that the mm. my partner has give have given me reason to have mm. you know so okay well here's here's okay i feel like as a leftist part of what we talk about all the time is like having a better sense of community and shared responsibility and i guess mm-hmm. i see romantic relationships as kind of part of that like mm-hmm. i I have certainly dated people who I've thought, oh, Lord, if their parents got sick and had to move in with us, got old, uh, this would not be ideal. This is going to decrease my quality of life. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, I've dated people who I would have considered it a real honor to take care of their parents. And I really admire the fact that they came from a, you know different cultures where it's an expectation yeah. that you take. They grew up with their grandparents, you know, and I think there's something very beautiful about that and kind of sad about uh, the Western conception of you know, kind of everybody living so separate and moving so far away and putting people up in homes and all of that sort of thing. And it, there's just, I mean, that same person, like I remember, you know, I, you know, it was a partner who was not very marriage minded and not very like, <laughs> traditionally minded. And I remember thinking, well, it doesn't have to be marriage. I just want to be with you forever, yeah. you know, but at the same time, it seems, sounds to me like what you're saying is the thing that you don't like about marriage is the idea that you are stuck together forever. And I agree there should be some some kind of exit hatch for, you know, there's abuse and all kinds of things that happen. But the reason most people get divorced, I would argue, is not necessarily always for, like, great reasons. I do think there's something about having some kind of structure that forces you to resist the instinct to flee when things are hard, even when they're really hard. Because it's like a growth, it's about growth and it's about valuing the time you spend together and about the security and life that comes with knowing that you've made a more permanent type of commitment that doesn't have an escape hatch. And like the security that can come from that and the openness and vulnerability that can come from the knowledge that you guys have committed to each other, if not for life, then for a very, very long time, you know? I completely agree, but I think that's, like if that's not inner work that you do, then no structure can force you to do that, right? I, I mean, for instance, I can mm. stay married to you and have fundamentally bailed during a hard time, right? Like emotionally in every way. Uh, and by the same token, I I cannot be married to you and be all in when like, let's say your mom is sick, right? Like that's sort of, one would rely on the love and the commitment to do that. But it's almost like, the, the structure is oppressive in the way that I might, let's say I have emotionally checked out, I'm no longer invested. Mm-hmm. It is so cumbersome to get a divorce. 
that we are in this, we're stuck in a bad situation. Right? Well, that's the flip side of, I mean, one might frame that differently and say, having a higher barrier to exit keeps people from making impulsive decisions. Right. And if you really, if it really is that bad, well, you can get a divorce. Everyone gets a divorce. You know, 50% of people get divorced, <laughs> but you know, in the interim, you know, you know, I don't know. It's like um, in some, you know, you know, Muslim contexts, it's like, you know, you say I divorce you three times and you're divorced. Like there are, there are ways that women historically are yeah. more vulnerable. If the man who provides the financial you know, backing yes. for the relationship can walk away so easily. And the, the marriage is really there to protect kind of the property interests of both parties. Ex- yeah. You know. Marriage does an excellent job of protecting property interests and it does an excellent job of enforcing patriarchy. And so that is part but of why not, we're I mean, it's not just patriarchy. I mean, like, I, I, I don't want to, I mean, it is women, you know, I, it, I like this. It, it's so many women who sacrifice their careers and stay home with kids and stuff for like biological reasons, right? Like you had the mm. baby that end up benefiting from there being some legal structure that prevents a man from just walking away from the obligations. But I'm surprised because it's like in wanting a legal structure to pre- sort of quote, um, uh, save people from their own impulses is like a paternalistic view that I would not. I'm well, I, don't think it's pater- I, I don't think it's paternalistic. I don't think it's, it's not the woman who's in the raw. It's not the woman, you know. It's no, no, the, I'm, I'm talking about like legal paternalism where you have laws in place that like, for instance. Uh, well, so is that, social security legal paternalism? Well, because people should be smart enough to save their money without the government taking it out of their checks and saving it for them for retirement? Oh, wait, I mean, it is. In, I mean, Okay, I, so then paternalism is good. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know no, that, I mean, I that think label on instance, it. Makes it a bad yeah, thing. instances which are good. And, no, yeah, I agree. You're right. I shouldn't have cited the label to imply that it's bad because there's instances of it that are good. But to me, this is an instance of, it's almost like if your impulse is to leave, then if a structure prevents you from leaving, um, that's a miserable existence. Sure, you well, could, it doesn't could prevent be... you from leaving. Like, I hear you in a context where you're in a cultural context where divorce is not okay and you're shunned in your community and all of that. But in, like, a Western context where you can totally leave, it's just going to cost you some money and you have to think twice about it to see if it's really worth it. It seems to me that there is some kind of barrier to exit is constructive given the nature of human impulses and the same human impulse that makes you not safe for retirement because you think you're going to do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day and then you wake up and you're 65 and you haven't saved a dime. That same human impulse not to really plan for the long term and be impulsive in the day to day is the same human impulse that will have you walk away from your partner of you know 10, 20 years because you just had a really bad fight or maybe you had a bad stretch of a year or two and then things turn around. Okay, so okay, let me put a question to you. So this, sure. uh, this is getting unnecessarily adversarial. I don't. No, no, no. It's not. I'm really enjoying <laughs> yeah. this, actually. Okay, great. So let me put a question to you. Mm-hmm. My experience, and which is uh, about like close to a decade less than yours, so we'll give you the advantage here if yours is different, is that uh, all I know of relationships, romantic and otherwise, is that there is a period of excitement. And after the excitement goes, either it settles into a nice comfort or it's kind of served its utility and it's over. And that's all I've known of all relationships outside of one's family, which where duty and other kinds of feelings are at play. So um, to me, any arrangement which prevents the organic uh, ebb and flow of two people to me seems inherently 
at war with what happens between two people. So for instance, in my imagination of how I would do companionship in a sustained, committed way would mm. be that that ebb and flow would be honored in that an ebb would not mean a permanent exit. It would just mean that for that period, like life happens with friends, right? Like for you, there might be a period of time you're not really in touch and then life happens and you're back in touch, so on and so forth. So for me, just it's almost like needing to say, for instance, all the things you heard about marriage, which is that, you know, wanting to get the spark back or, you know, the romance is gone, etc. It's almost like, yeah, of course, that's that's what happens between two people. But because you're kind of in this together, you feel the need to recreate that when, you know, there's other ways of going about it. Am I making any what, sense? what are the other ways of recreating the spark? Because it sounds like you just want to go and cheat. <laughs> yeah so that's what it, like cheat for obviously uh, all like cheating would be wrong but uh you know you, you just want to go be with someone else so so yeah, here's I, the thing fundamentally and I, i'm not saying that you're wrong i'm not saying that i'm right but marriage is there to protect women like that's the point and i don't think that i don't think I that your thinking is wrong but i think it's very I it's what a lot of men I'm, think <laughs> Okay, no, no, I, hear, I, I hear that. I hear. And okay, I hear that I'm sounding like a type. But if I was to clip, if I was to clip and post you on marriages that to protect women, I mean, do it like that. But it is so like this isn't this isn't like rocket science. This isn't like a, it's not also like a. Um, I'm not making it up. Like this isn't a value judgment. It, it just it's literally what it is. Because no, but we, I could say there is a literal fact that marriage is there to oppress women. Hello, have I lost you? Yeah, no, I no, I'm here. I'm I'm yeah. I'm thinking about it. No. No. <laughs> okay, cool. I just, I no. Because that because look, look, I, I didn't think I didn't invent human society. I didn't invent thousands of years of cultural heritage that's broadly similar across the world, although of course there have been outliers in different kinds of cultures who've done it in different kinds of ways, you know, matriarchal societies and all of that. But mm-hmm. broadly speaking, Marriage is there to control the market for sex <laughs> yes. and to force men to have to give something up in exchange for sex. No, like it's no. like a commodity exchange. This is not a value judgment. This no, no, I'm far I, I, from I'm, a value judgment. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm giving you a counterfactual, which is that uh, I, I hope I use that word correctly, but basically I'm countering you factually, mm-hmm. not with the value judgment. Sure. Which is that, um, so did I use it correctly? By the way, sorry, I get. I mean, it depends. You have to say what you're going to say. Oh, <laughs> I don't know what you are in, describing yet. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, like, what my reading tells me, and uh, is that so? Marriage came about. We went from slightly more loosely organized tribes, where you know there was, uh, you know, uh, sex wasn't you want uh, you want only having sex with one partner, etc. Mm-hmm. So, marriage came about to sort of ensure that. Uh, the paternal lineage or like the lineage can be ascertained. So one yeah. knows that mm-hmm. the child is mine. Yeah. So hence I, marriage came about to ensure that at least the woman is only having sex with one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as time went on, that that structure became more uh, like uh, it is with the, I think with the influx of the church or with the influx of religion, that the same kind of fidelity was forced upon the man as well. Mm-hmm. And then I think, if I remember correctly, the French, as the French do, brought love into the mix. So we're not saying different uh, things. I, that doesn't contradict anything that I said. No, so, but I'm saying that uh, in 
once it's on i think what you said picks up once the initial uh, uh initial forcing the woman to stick to one partner has no, no no but but, but the, yeah. my, the point i'm trying to make is that without the marriage forces the man to give something up in return like so the man gets the, to understand that the kids are his and the woman gets that the kids are taken care of because they're his and also i'm taken care of like it's a yes. it's, there's a reciprocity there that is not necessarily extant in a world where men are stronger than women and are running around raping people and that's just what mm-hmm. it is you know mm-hmm. um so like in in the contemporary context to this day women on the whole get to decide i mean you know obviously sexual assault aside when the sex happens and men mm-hmm. are deciding this is obviously aggressively heteronormative apologize apologies to all of my gay yeah. friends in the audience but men are deciding when marriage happens and then there's what this, happens when marriage happens. happens yeah yeah and as a man, I completely understand why you would love a world since now everyone has sex outside of marriage and nobody cares. Where, where What's the point of marriage anymore? From a woman's perspective, since many women are still getting pregnant unintentionally, even with the best of birth control and all of the things. And from a perspective where your capital in the sexual market declines over time and with age and all of those things. There is an investment, a desire to have someone who's going to love you for a period that outpaces for like a longer period than your di- desirability in a sexual marketplace. Sometimes okay. I sit here and I think I'm having a good time. I go on the apps. Hot guys match with me. I go out on dates. Why am I so pressed to be in a relationship? But for many reasons, including that I sincerely value companionship and getting to know someone. And I think that love grows stronger over time and intimacy Mm -hmm. yields a better kind of relationship than these like brief encounters. Like I, I want a partner and I don't understand why I would ever be aiming for a partner that I had an expiration date. If that happens and I end up getting divorced, fine. People get divorced. I'm not saying that people should be forced into marriage, obviously. And I just also want to say many places in Europe, Marriage is really, really on the decline. No one really gets married. Now, these Scandinavians just like pair up, move in together, have kids, and like nobody thinks anything about it. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be happy and God bless. And I, maybe I just, maybe you're right. Maybe I do have a really regressive, old fashioned way of thinking. And that's, I, I own that. Like, I completely own that. But no, no, I, that's, that's definitely it, not how I would characterize it. But no, no, but it's fine. I, I like I truly don't care. I don't mind mm-hmm. being characterized mm-hmm. that way. But the reality is, in my cultural context in the United States mm-hmm. of America, the idea of a man kind of not getting married at this point in history, and maybe that will change over time. It feels like mm-hmm. I would be he would be like getting away with something, like not pulling his side of the bargain. And I would have absolutely no assurances of his commitment yeah. level to me for the long term, but for a proposal of marriage. Like, I don't know how I would have yeah. any certainty that they wouldn't just be like, this is just a two year thing. And then I'm back out on the streets again. How am I going to plan and buy a house with someone, have children with someone? Like, I don't know how to manifest. And especially if I don't want to have kids, like how else will one manifest that they are genuinely going to work through hard times with me and not sky up and bounce when we have a bad stretch for a year or two or three? And if you don't want to be there for a bad stretch every year or two or three, you should not get married. I And everyone has that right to not get married. 
But if you value the idea of being able to see the trajectory of somebody's life for a 20, 30 year period, if you want to be like, um, we did when we had Susan Sarandon on, if you want to be like that scene in shall we dance where she's married to Richard Greer and she's telling the guy at the bar, like to be married is to be the witness of somebody's life. And that's a value that you have. Then I want to be married. You know, and so out of curiosity, you mm-hmm. think that this, the comfort of feeling like this person's going to be there no matter what mm-hmm. is a comfort you can only find with the contract of marriage. In this cultural context, like maybe if I were in Sweden, where nobody mm-hmm. gets married and men regularly commit, I would feel more secure. In the United States of America, where people get married and they still don't commit, <laughs> that, I, I would Go be ahead. extremely suspicious of a man who's like, I don't want to get married. Like, why the fuck not? Like, that's suspicious as hell in this cultural context. Do you know what I mean? Like, okay. I can imagine there's a different world where, you know, men are different and the patriarchy isn't what it is and people aren't in the DMs the way that they are and... <laughs> You know, men are raised to have feelings and love and and not be so uptight. And, you know, we don't do the horrible things that we do to men and raise them feeling as like they can't cry and all that shit. Like in a different kind of world where men are different. How much do you think your being a public figure has sort of uh, warped, uh, I mean, the sample of awful men you're getting? I don't think, I don't date awful men. I don't know. Everybody in the in the chat is like, oh, no, no, you not, need to pick better. I date anyway. wonderful men. <laughs> like, I don't know what your guys' problems are. I'm not dating scrubs. I'm dating lovely men. I happen not to have married them, but my, my boyfriends are not bad people. I mean, like the people in your DMs, etc. that you're talking of. I mean, those oh, kind of factors that are making you cynical about men. No, I'm not talking about my DMs. I'm talking about other people's experience. Like, I'm just okay. reading articles about how, like, social media is blamed for like 50% of divorces or whatever the stat is now. Like I, I'm not speaking from personal experience. I've never been cheated on. That's not my issue. That's, I mean, not, not that I'm blaming anybody for you know being cheated on, obviously. I'm just saying like, I, I don't yeah, like the advice I was getting. I was like, I don't know who you're talking to, but I'm not, I don't date those kinds of, I don't date. Like uh, I, I'm very good at identifying red flags. Like that is not my issue. I don't have an issue. I just haven't met a person I want to marry. Like first and foremost, I don't, this is not a problem to be solved. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I understand. No, and possible if you spoke to a woman who similarly placed in India, she might in fact have more misgivings than I do about what a man in a free state would do. Because yeah. as a guy, I'm probably uh, overestimating uh, niceness at our end. But um, okay. okay. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. I mean, it's a, it's a thoughtful series of questions. And like, it's all very context dependent. And mm. You know, yeah. So, for I, instance, one thing I realized as mm-hmm. one thing I realized as you were speaking was because of sort of the cultural and educational similarity I sensed with, let's say, you and your panel members. I think I didn't account for the the financial sort of uh, precarity that might be experienced in U.S., which is so much further along with capitalism than sort of an upper middle class uh, degree holding person here in India. Because, for instance, with me and my friends, including the female ones, the financial precarity and that leading to finding comfort in marriage is a much smaller factor. Interesting. Because, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously doing better than, you know, most Americans. And I, I worry that I don't have money for retirement. Like I could yeah. be on the street. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. but the Patreon, you know, every month the Patreon dips and I have a panic attack and it's like, is this the month that I can no longer sustain myself? Thanks for that, guys, by the way. <laughs> um, and I, uh, you know, like I, I 
yeah, I also do want to get money because I do want someone legally committed. You know, I want to, I want to be on yeah, you wanted health that, insurance. You wanted, you wanted to income household. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to split a mortgage. I want to be on somebody's health insurance. I want two social security checks coming our way. You know, yeah. I a hundred percent want those things. It's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know what is going to happen otherwise, you know? Yeah. I understand. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I will save my thoughts on this episode. <laughs> I think I've run out of my time for sure. Well, I appreciate you calling in a, and, um, Good luck to you and your endeavors. I hope you find what you're looking for. <laughs> I, to be clear, I'm not willing, I'm not looking to bail on anyone. That's not the mm-hmm. okay. likely story. That's the real reason he only wants to go by A. He doesn't want the ladies to know that he's uh he's uh not in it for the long haul. He wants to stay oh, in Casanova. Dear Lord. Okay. All right, you have a good night. You too, A. Um, as always, thanks everybody for calling in. This has been a lot of fun. Use the clip feature and pull your favorite parts of this episode and push them to social media. Like only one person did it last time and it really hurt my feelings. So <laughs> um, it really helps us to publicize what's going on in this show. I think that these conversations are really rich. It's hard to get a sense of what's going on in like a sprawling three hour session. So you doing these clips and being able to share them really helps. Remember, not ju- don't just follow this show, but follow me because I think I might start some other kinds of shows where we talk about some lighter things with different guests on this app. Remember to like and follow the Bad Faith YouTube page, even if you don't have the means to subscribe to Patreon. I understand that things are tight, but even the social media push really helps a lot. We truly would not be able to do this. Um, You know, Ben and I are so appreciative of everybody, and this whole thing would not work without you and your support. Um, So thank you. And this community is so lovely. You guys are really... So lovely and such a lovely respite from um, uh, my mentions. (laughs) Um, So thank you for that. And as always, you should keep the faith. I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars skags. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million albums. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. A late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we loving, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we loving, it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime.